This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host. 10K Trevino, and as always, I am joined by my podcasting partner in crime. You know him as. You ready for that? Ooh. Hurricane. That's right, Hurricane Martinez. Girardi said, "I wasn't using my soundboard enough over the last couple episodes, so I'm trying to bring it back uh, for this episode." And I do have to issue an apology because a listener pointed out that the end of last show. I accidentally said, that's Hurricane, I'm Gerard, so I just don't want you to think I was trying to identity theft you, Gerard. I apologize. <laughs> I didn't catch that. I, didn't I did that. not catch it either. The, the last episode was tough. It was a grind. We had Wi-Fi issues. Um, we were scrambling to try to get some consistency with the connection. And, um, you know, as Dylan Williams said in the article that uh, we wrote this week, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the former 2024 Long Beach Poly Trojan commit. Uh, we're just looking for that connection. We're looking for the connection. And today, <laughs> we hope that the connection is solid for our peristylers out there. I agree. I hope the connection is strong. We did not have – I don't want to say we didn't have things to talk about last week. We did. But this episode, episode 41, I believe – gosh, it's been 40-plus episodes – it's it's been so long, but this week we do have more concrete stuff to talk about. One being a very slam dunk of a cold open. Everyone knows what we're going to be talking about. That is new offensive line transfer Ethan White. That's going to be the cold opening. That it that shouldn't be surprised anyone. We're also going to talk about Jason Rodriguez retiring, Dylan Williams, as you alluded to, a whole bunch of new 2024. Uh, USC offers and 2025 and 26, but we're going to focus on 2024. A little more Deuce Robinson. We have a new 2026 QB on the radar. Lincoln Riley has officially offered. We have a couple decommitments. We have a 2023 cornerback to talk about, and then we're going to do an overview of USC's transfer window and how they did. And we're going to go back at our list of what they needed and then look at it now as to what they filled. So, Lots of things we're going to talk about, but two announcements, Gerard, I do want to make. One is the next time we'll be doing this show or the next time we're supposed to be doing this show will be February signing day, national signing day, not the real signing day uh, these days. But and by popular demand, I can confirm that we are going to do another live composite two star recruits. Gerard gave me a verbal commitment, even though verbal commitments do not mean anything these days. He gave me a verbal commitment that he will be in studio next Wednesday so we can do another live composite two-star recruits on YouTube in the studio together. How does that sound? I'm weighing my options. I want to see (laughs) 
what each podcast has to offer. And NIL doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know, I'm really looking for the connection. I'm really looking to feel what podcast makes me feel the most comfortable and what host do I have the best relationship with? Hey, I mean, you want to talk about NIL? They were dropping bags last episode. So I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. That was there. The NIL was there. Money Mitch and Money uh, Money Manford. Money Manford. No, it was Money Bags Manford. Money Bags Manford and Money Money Mitchell. Yeah, Money Mitchell. That's what it was. Yeah. Money Bags Manford, Money Mitchell dropping it back and forth. Will they appear on Wednesday show for February Saturday night? I don't know. I don't know who's going to show up. Ryan is very excited to show up in some capacity uh, for this show. So I think it's going to be a much more entertaining show than it was uh, last time, which we were kind of just flying off the seat of our pants. And it was still a fun show. Great show. I will obviously remember to hit record so you can listen to the full thing this time and not miss the first 30 minutes. But if you want to check out the first one, that one is still up on YouTube. That has 10,000 views. 10,000 for 10K. Thank you very much. But very excited to go back and do another live show on a big day. Well, what could be a big day? Roderick Pleasant, Deuce Robinson, they will both be making their commitments on February 1st. So, you know, could be some fireworks, could be some big things to talk about. But either way, we're going to fill we're going to find the way to fill another multi-hour multi-hour show. And Gerard, we did 4 hours last time. You think we could do 5 this time? What do you think? It's going to depend on what happens on signing day. I mean, how much are we going to talk about how much new and uh, headline-breaking commitments can USC lock down? Because, you know, truthfully, the last signing day was pretty quiet, but we were in the midst of the first window of the transfer portal opening up. So that was something that we talked about at length. And now that portal has closed and we sort of know what the talent pool is from the first portal. You know, obviously, everybody loves when we speculate on what's to come when it comes to transfers. But we may or may not have a lot to talk about in terms of the signing day. It's possible that we have more commitments to talk about on signing day in February as opposed to signing day in December. There's there there are some potential candidates out there that could go USC's way. Absolutely. And so keep that on your radar. A week from today, we're expected to be live in front of you on your two, your YouTube. Put us up on your living room TV and watch us make a fool out of ourselves and have some fun live on the show. Join the chat. Should be a good time. And the second note I wanted to do is the one I pretty much do every episode, and that is a, a thank you to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. You know her. You love her. We love her. Meredith Schlosser one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales. That is some serious NIL coin and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. Meredith has represented everyone from Jeannie Buss, the president of the Los Angeles Lakers, all the way to a one-star like me. Yes, I, and I mentioned that several times on this podcast, is Meredith and her team helped me get into the house that I currently live in now. It was awesome. It was super easy. Look, I know Meredith Schlosser is a tough last name to pronounce. I get that. But it's going to be easy with your home buying experience or your home selling experience if you go with her and her team. That's how easy they make it. They handle everything for you. I just had to sit back and wait for them to bring me all these options and do all the work for me. It was amazing. 
I cannot recommend her and her team enough. She is backed by a full service team that allows her to service a wide range of clientele for rental sales and purchases. She has an extensive experience with first time home buyers and sellers, and she was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. 1.5% people. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. So thank you again to Meredith Schlosser, the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Now, Gerard, let's get into some beef. Let's get into some big old offensive lineman, and that is Florida offensive guard Ethan White. And to quote the great singer SZA, I need a big boy. I want a big boy. And that is exactly what USC got, a big boy in Ethan White, six foot five, 331 pounds. He is a load coming from the SEC, started 13 games at left tackle, excuse me, left guard for the Gators, seven more the year before in 2021. So 20 career starts at left guard he's bringing to USC. I believe it's 31 game appearances overall across his college career. This was a big hole that USC needed to fill at left guard with the departure of Andrew Voorhees, a two-time All-American veteran stalwart and a guy you could count on in there in the interior. Now we're talking about upgrading players, and I can't say that Ethan White is an upgrade when you're replacing an All-American, but I must say this is a big pickup. Ethan White is certainly a high-level starter, and this is an instant plug-and-play guy. Forget about it and move on to fixing another part of the team because that's how secure he is with this. Gerard, give me your thoughts on Ethan White. Well, first, you had me at great singer SZA. So at some point, you'll have to explain that to the audience and myself. But on the subject of Ethan White, I think what you said is probably the most interesting aspect of his addition is Upgrade versus replacing a guy that was a two-time All-American. And certainly, you don't want to necessarily have that expectation, but what other players, what other prospects would you be able to plug in at that position and have them be a contributor right away or have these expectations of being able to fill in a spot where you lose a two-time All-American? Will you get a second-team all SEC player on one of the best offensive lines in the SEC in Ethan White. Uh, left guard, he plays that position. He was uh, very good at that position. I watched a handful of games of him last year over the last couple of days. And, you know, it's interesting because I felt like he is a better pass blocker than he is run blocker. And you would think uh, guard, interior guard at that at that size would be more of a straight-ahead masher and a guy that just kind of leaned forward and was a really good run blocker as opposed to necessarily having the good feet and good balance and staying in front of his defensive lineman. Ethan White is a very, very good pass blocker. I mean, he that's kind of what his strength is right now. I think the big question for him is going to be within USC's offense and Lincoln Riley's offense. How is your mobility when you're running the GT counter, when you're pulling as much as USC likes to pull in the run game? Now, Ethan White did pull some. 
I uh, saw, you know, a few plays where they did pull and he looked good doing it. Uh, surprisingly <laughs> for a he's big still, man. Yeah. For a big man, he's not nearly as nimble as Voorhees is. And the offensive line as a whole is not going to be quite as quick and as nimble. But at the same time, I think when you bring guys like Ethan White into the mix, you're not going to see, uh, certainly in pass protection or really run blocking, a lot of whip blocks because you're just getting a much bigger offensive line, a more physical offensive line. You know, we really didn't talk a whole, a whole lot about Michael uh, Tarquin, who is also coming in from Florida, and he started on the right side as an offensive tackle. And Tarquin is very sort of um, – you know, uh, he's kind of twitchy there at the right tackle. You know, his kick step, it's it's a little erratic. It's a little, you know, he kind of jumps out of his, his stance a little bit. But he's a guy that I actually watched as a run blocker and was surprising to see that he was probably a better run blocker than he is a pass blocker. So it's kind of the opposite of what you would think with those two players. But they're both good enough uh, at run blocking and pass blocking that um, they'll absolutely push for – starts at, at USC. And I think with Ethan White, that's the guy you basically pencil in as a starter. Uh, we know that, um, you know, Tarquin is going to go at it with Mason Murphy. And uh, that's that's potentially, you know, a, 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 a something that we have to watch for spring ball and over the summer, that competition for starting right tackle. Mason Murphy may compete as well with Jared Kingston on the left side. So we'll see how they move him around. He played various different positions. Um, you know, that's the unique thing about Ethan White is that, you know, he played left guard and he's going to come in and fill in at left guard. And he that's co- sort of his position right there, you know, whereas USC, a lot of these guys that they have, they've moved around a bit. And, and that's, I think, something to be expected with a new coaching staff. Uh, you know, these players played for various different offenses and offensive line coaches, um, you know, some going all the way back to where uh, you had uh, – um, let's see, it wouldn't be Jeff Connolly. It was uh, Neil Calloway that was the offensive line coach that actually recruited uh, some of the players that are just starting to leave now. And so, you know, there's been a lot of turnover in terms of the type of offenses. So you've seen these guys jump around a bit, you know, and, and Boris was a guy that moved around a little bit. Obviously, Justin Dijic has moved around a little bit. But with Ethan White, he's a left guard, you know, and that's the position he's going to play. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves uh, over time with these new players that they have. But um, I think that, you know, that that's the biggest question. It's, uh, you know, mobility uh, for a guy that size, you know, is USC, are we going to see some adjustments here? Um, some, some wrinkles, some changes maybe in the run game. I've talked about it before. USC going forward, looking at the commitment list that they have with guys like Amos Telelele, Alani Noah, in the interior and some of the players in the 2024 class that they can bring in. I mean, this could be very run heavy, run oriented type of offense and be very dominant. And I don't know if Lincoln Riley really wants to be that type of offense. You know, I, I think that he does like to pass the ball and, and they like to be looked at as an offense that moves the ball downfield, passing first and running later. But this could be a run first offense and it could be, a very physical run offense in the interior. It's just going to be a question of, you know, do you run the same type of run plays where you have so much maneuvering on the offensive line? I mean, Ethan White coming out of high school was almost 400 pounds. So he's down now quite a bit. He's lost a bit of weight, but still you're talking about a guy that 
Um, you know, in the past game, good feet, good balance, but, you know, short area quickness, not a guy that, you know, you see running downfield like a Mason Murphy. Mason Murphy is uh, much more athletic and a guy that, you know, you can pull straight across the line and he's going to be able to get to the second level of the defense fine. And with Ethan White, I don't think that's necessarily what you want to be doing. So that's going to take some adjustment just in terms of play design. You know, Lincoln Riley's going to have to take a step back and kind of look at his playbook, look at the plays they're running and try to hone in on really what works with this offensive line, because it is evolving. It is changing. It's going to be different uh, going forward. But it's an offensive line that when you get guys like Ethan White and you, you get those bigger, stronger, more physical players that maybe they're not as mobile, they are going to be able to take on bigger defensive lines. And that's really been the biggest question kind of, you know, when you take on a big physical defensive line, that's, you know, a top 10 level defense, or just, you know, as a team, you're playing against those teams that are playoff contenders. You're not playing small ball anymore. And, and you can't necessarily put everything on misdirection and movement. Sometimes you just got to block the guy in front of you. You got to mic block them and you got to push guys back. And that's going to be very important as they make that transition into the Big Ten. Because the Big Ten, you're just going to have bigger football players, bigger athletes, and you've got to match that on offensive line. So, you know, the big question here is, did USC really upgrade or are they just replacing a, a good offensive line? Uh, uh, I would say it's a, it was an above average line last year. I think against Utah, you know, we saw, eh, you know, something. Against, there's a few teams where you saw the offensive line in certain situations, guys just get beat, physically beat. I don't mm -hmm. think you're going to see as much of that next season. I, I think just with another year uh, with Josh Hansen, and seeing the development over this course of this past season with players like Mason Murphy and, and John Amaheim, I think as long as USC doesn't lose any players that were starters or had you know contributed as starters at some point during the last season or two, I think you definitely upgrade on the offensive line, which is really the only position that I would say on this offense that you could question. And and, and you know we have to go back to where we were you know, a couple of years ago where the offensive line was maybe the biggest weakness of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, we're sitting here talking about, man, they, they have whiffed three cycles in a row on offensive tackles and they're running out of talent on the offensive line. And now you're, you're looking at a position which is no longer standing out like a sore thumb from an offense that has a boatload of talent at all the other positions. So just in general, offensively, I mean, this team looks good. It looks very strong. And I think that, um, you know, again, next season, you know, they may get reined in a little bit just because defenses have seen a little bit of, of them already. And they may have more tape on Caleb Williams and tendencies. That's a natural thing. That's something that you kind of expect a little bit. And that's why we talk about how the defense has to get better. I mean, it has to improve in order for this team to, to, to take that next step and, and become elite. But uh, the offense, I still think, is going to be very, very good. And the reason why I kind of harp on the possibility of having a, a run-oriented offense or, or just an offense which, balance-wise, you put a little bit more on the run, you, you, you feel like you can control the offensive line more, is because that's harder to make any adjustments to. When, when you can line up and the other team knows what you're going to do and you still do it, that's yeah. when you can win national championships. That's where, you know, your offense just imposes its will. It's tougher to do that in the passing game. You, you really, 
you know, passing game tends to be a little bit more about, um, you know, faking the other team out and design wise kind of confusing them. And, and, and the option game has a little bit of that as well, obviously, but when you can have that just kind of straightforward running game and, and, and this is what they did really well last year is on short downs, you know, it's the down and distance is third and two it's third and four and being able to run the ball consistently on those downs and moving the chains. That's, that's huge offensively. And that's huge for, for college teams just in general. You know, you want to have as many opportunities to score as possible. And so the more conversions you can get on third down, the more time you're going to be on the field, the more opportunities you have to make a big play. And so I think that was very, very huge. You know, having Caleb as a mobile quarterback that, that, that really, you know, keeps the defense honest, but then just being able to run the ball straight forward, uh, I think was, was huge for them. And that's something we've talked about for the last couple of years. You know, they had struggled mightily uh, to be able to run the ball on third and four, third and two, third and one. I mean, they, there was so many instances where they just could not get together and run the ball on, sh- on short yardage. And now you see a team that's being able to be more consistent. And like I said, I think taking that, the opportunity to not only be consistent in doing that, but consistently being able to run the ball three times in a row and just not being able to stop them is, is a very distinct possibility. And I think, and I don't know how you, if you agree or disagree with this, but throughout the season kind of talked about how USC really could have run the ball more. Like they were the best running team that was reluctant to run the ball at certain times. That didn't really happen against Utah with, with, with uh, Caleb Williams going down. And obviously people have, you know, their thoughts about, you know, Caleb Williams going down and how much that affected the offense. It obviously did, but to, to what extent, you know, was, was Utah making adjustments and to what extent did it, was it all about Caleb Williams being out? That's open to debate, I think. Uh, but I think in general, you know, they did a really good job against Notre Dame. They did a really good job against UCLA. I feel like, I mean, now they're going to have even more opportunity to run the ball. Do they do it? You know, does, does Lincoln Riley as a former quarterback say, yeah, that's, that's maybe the strength of my offense. Now we need to run the ball more. Do you think that he pulls the trigger on that? Do you think that the playbook or the play calling, does it adjust to that? Or do you think that they still want to kind of pass the ball and win games passing the ball? It's an interesting question. Cause there was definitely this weird sort of relationship with the run game in 2022. Cause as you mentioned, there were definitely moments where they look like a really, really good running team. And then maybe they would stop doing that and they would go to the passing game and it didn't always work out for them. There, there are times where they stalled where maybe the passing game wasn't going and you felt like, well, maybe just let's run the ball a little more. Let's see, let's see what that looks like. And sometimes that didn't always play out like that. You know, they still won a bunch of games, but there are certainly times where you felt like, I think they should keep the ball on the ground more. So I personally think Lincoln Riley, you know, quarterback, dynamic Heisman returning. I think they're always going to lean towards that, that passing attack first, but all the points you just made about their offensive line going to next season or we're shaping up to be next season. They're going to be big. They're going to be bigger. They're going to be more physical. And I think you can definitely run the ball a lot more and, and probably be more effective than you were last season. And, that will lead to some better results. That will keep the defense off the field longer. That will keep them a little bit fresher. That will take some of the the the, the load off of Kayla Williams having to 
do everything. And again, as I mentioned, I think just with Lincoln's natural tendencies, him being a quarterback, I think he's always going to one want to be, you know, kind of leaning towards the pass. But I do acknowledge that I think that they, I think he'll he'll see that they can they can take not the risk but the the opportunity to run more. Just you have the offensive line, you have a reshaped bigger offensive line, you have a tough physical runner in uh, Austin Jones back. Marshawn Lloyd is a bigger back at 212 pounds, whatever. You have some bigger backs. Pound the ball a little bit. You you can let's see what that looks like in 2023, and and you know. That'll open the door up more for Caleb, maybe even sore with the passing game. If, you, if you're running the ball effectively for, for a lot of the time, you, you have those guys creeping in to stop the run and bam, just give your offense a little bit more wiggle room, a little bit more space to operate when you do want to go to the pass. So again, I think it'll be more still leaning towards pass, but I think they'll do more running if that, if that makes sense. If I made my point clear enough. Yeah. And I know that there are some Trojan fans right now that are going, you're you're criticizing the offense. I mean, the offense was elite last year. The offense was amazing, and you guys are being ticky tack about what the offense needs to do. Just Lincoln Riley, just let Lincoln Riley call plays like he's called plays. It's more of preparing for, like I said, next year. I think there's going to be um, defenses that are just a little better prepared for what USC did last year. And I also think that, you know, we're looking at them making that next step to trying to be an elite team overall and not just a, a high-flying, all very exciting offense because, you know, your quarterback is, is running around and doing things that, you know, are generational talent level plays. And you're not always going to have those generational talents, you know, in your offense. Everybody saw what Reggie Bush did at USC. And it was like, okay, cool. So who's the next guy? And the next guy wasn't there. The next guy was supposed to be Percy Harvin, and then they didn't land Percy Harvin. And then it was supposed to be this guy and that guy, and they they didn't get those players. And you don't always get those players. And so, you know, I think you have to always kind of look at it as, okay, what can the offense do to take pressure off of that position because the next guy that steps into that position might not be able to do all those things. So it's really just a matter of looking ahead in terms of, you know, maybe defenses catch up a little bit with what USC is doing and then also preparing for the Big Ten and then also preparing for playing more elite defenses. USC did not play a lot of elite defenses last year. And so, yeah, they outscored some teams and they had some, you know, high scoring games. But when you play against the big boys, it's, it's going to be a different level of football and you're going to have to do some different things. And you do not want to um, pigeonhole yourself offensively in anything. So we're looking at. You know, again, what was sort of a weakness uh, up until last year, and we saw that development with the offensive line, and now we're looking forward to okay, how does 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 it does it continue to get better to upgrade? I mean, I think that you can say that they have upgraded overall. Uh, when you look at Bobby Haskins for let's say uh, Jarrett Kingston, I think Kingston is is the better prospect there um, in in that trade uh, with Voorhees. I think Voorhees is the better player there, but Ethan White has the potential to, to maybe be at that level. He has the potential to, to maybe be at an All-American level uh, next season. We'll see how that goes. Um, I think, you know, with Tarquin 
at right tackle, we're not really seeing a loss in right tackle necessarily. We're just seeing some shifting as to, you know, who ends up where. But I think because you look and expect there to be some continued evolution and development from guys like Mason Murphy and Jonah Monheim and maybe some guys that are, you know, behind that we haven't really seen play a whole lot off the offensive line. Uh, you know, guys like uh, Cooper Lovelace, you know, that we haven't seen a whole lot of. That's another big offensive lineman, another, you know, 330-pound uh, type offensive interior guard that could be a player that, you know, could make some 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 moves for USC. I mean, he was one of the top – I think he was a number one Juco. Uh, he was the number one interior, interior uh, Juco offensive lineman. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, you, you, you expect that he's going to be able to, you know, make some moves and do some things. Uh, here in the offseason, and, and Cortland Ford is still out there, a guy that has a lot of potential, um, and we've seen a little bit of Gino Canyones. So, yeah, there's some other players there that are sort of in the mix rotation-wise, and you feel like the depth has improved uh, to some extent. And, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, overall the offensive line is getting better. And, and, again, that's you know maybe the weak point of the offense as a whole, but the offense as a whole was pretty good. So, it's uh, one of those things that I think um, we're just looking at uh, how they prepare uh, to take on any little wrinkles that uh, defenses throw at them next year. I'm guaranteeing you that uh, all these defensive coordinators in the Pac-12, they've just been sitting there watching USC film since the last game of the season. And during spring ball, they're going to install a bunch of stuff and they're going to say, listen, you know, 13 is going to do this. 13 is going to do that. This is what they like to do with their GT counter. This is how we have to go after them this is what worked and this is what didn't work last year. And it just changes things for you. And uh, certainly, you know, Lincoln Riley's used to that. You know, they tried to do that uh, in the big 12 when he was at Oklahoma. Um, but uh, yeah, you've got to continue to evolve. And and so I think it's interesting to watch the offensive line, because I think that's where the evolution in, in potential change coming down uh, as we get closer to that uh, move to the big 10, that's where it's happening the most, you know, the receivers are still there. We haven't seen them like go grab a bunch of, like tall receivers or some different sort of profile of player at any of these positions. So running backs kind of look like the running backs last year. You know, like you said, uh, Marshawn Lloyd, a little bigger, you know, running back than, than they have, I guess, weight-wise, you know, Travis Dye. But he's not like a power back. He's still a combo back like Austin Jones and, and Darren Barlow. Uh, we'll see Relique Brown probably. I mean, that's going to be a point of evolution for them to try to get him the ball more. Uh, are they going to use him more as a running back? Is he going to you know, go out in the slot a little more? You have the freshmen that are obviously coming in. I think at the receiver position is where that class makes the biggest impact the earliest with Makai Lemon and Zachariah Branch. I think those two guys can get on the field you know, quickest. Uh, neither of those guys is anything like Dar uh, uh, Dorian Singer. You know, He's a totally different player, a possession receiver completely. So, again, that's a wrinkle that changes because – now you have Lemon and Branch who speed-wise in the slot, you know, they can do a lot of the things that Brown does. They, they, they're similar maybe to a Mario Williams type of guy. But uh, as, as players, I think that they offer you something out of the offensive backfield, uh, maybe even in the run game that we haven't seen. So um, there's, there's a little kind of evolution there. But I think with the offensive line, that's where it's happening the most, just because you're getting more size, you're getting more physicality. And, um, you know, maybe a little more attitude even coming from the SEC. And you would just love to see USC just impose their will on teams. And and it, it just, you know, Caleb was just going to chill back there. And, and <laughs> I know he wants a second Heisman Trophy, but you know what? The one thing he said in that Heisman Trophy ceremony 
was, yeah, I got the Heisman Trophy, but all the guys here are going on to the college football playoffs. So that's still on his mind. And that's something that I'm sure, you know, he's got the Heisman looking forward. He wants to try to win a national championship. And that may take him a, a step back in terms of personal accolades and statistics. You know, it may have to be where he doesn't throw for 450 yards a game. <laughs> he might have to throw for more like 250, maybe 300 yards a game. And I think he'd be okay with that, not scrambling around, running for his life, making those highlight plays that got him to New York uh, if they are winning games and they're actually in the college football playoff and have a chance at actually competing there and, and beating a Georgia or Alabama or Ohio State. And two quick things as we wrap up the cold open, I just wanted to note you you highlighted Ethan White's ability as a pass blocker. He had 377 pass blocking snaps last season, according to Pro Football Focus. Not a single QB hit or sack allowed in those pass blocking. So pretty good. Also, Jared Kingston, 398 pass blocking snaps did not allow a sack or a QB hit. So that's 776 snaps last year between those two who we expect to be covering Kayla Williams' blindside at left tackle and left guard without a QB sack or a hit last season. So I know Kayla Williams is very happy, smiling when they locked in Ethan White to kind of just lock down that blindside and that left side for, for 2023. And Gerard, I feel like you were kind of dancing around it, but I just wanted to ask straight up because I feel like I'm at this point too with this offensive line now that they have Ethan White on board and you kind of look at it on paper and you start, you know, writing in writing in where who's going to play where and the depth and stuff. Are we able to say that this line, obviously we don't have the benefit of knowing what it's going to look like when they step on the field, but do we have are we able to say right now that this line is expected to be better than last year's line? And that's that's a weird thing to say, knowing that they're losing two all Americans off that line. Yes. Yes, I think that, uh, again, talking about replacing versus upgrades, I think, you know, we touched on it. And, yeah, I think that overall there's been an upgrade. I think uh, I think really Jared Kingston puts them over the top. You know, Bobby Haskins was serviceable. He was uh, a, a really good contributor for USC. And let's say he was playing injured for most of the season with the injury that – required surgery so he was gutting it out and definitely was not 100 percent all season and he was injured when he came to usc you know mm-hmm. he had to get the foot surgery and that was kind of an issue for him so i think with kingston that sort of a legitimate franchise type left tackle i think is huge for them and that's sort of where i think they take a step ahead of where we were last year looking at the offensive line it's certainly you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And last year, the offensive line, we were talking about that being the, really the main issue with the offense being good, being as good as we thought maybe it could be. And it was better, I think, than we even projected. I mean, I think we felt, okay, Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, uh, you get some of these receivers, a guy, you know, like Jordan Addison, who's a Bolitnikoff winner. The offense is going to be good. But to be at an elite level, to be like at the top of college football, which it was last year, I don't think that was necessarily predicted. And mostly because we were wary about, okay, so how does the offensive line play? You know, we know Caleb Williams is somewhat mobile and can scramble, but, you know, I mean, how much is going to be put on his shoulders to have to run for his life as opposed to being able to use uh, his arm to get the ball downfield? 
And so we saw him hold on to the ball a lot last year. Like very, there were some plays where, I mean, he had 11, 12, 13, 15 seconds to be able to throw that ball downfield. Now, again, he supplements the pass protection with his feet. So he's able to move the pocket and get away from, from defensive linemen. But he also sort of creates some of that because he held on to the ball so long. It wasn't one of those things where, you know, nobody was open. He was looking to make the big play maybe too many times last season and didn't get the ball out of his hands quicker where guys were open. And, you know, that's, again, youth. You know, some of that is just a sophomore quarterback. Um, and some of that is the confidence level and being able to make that big play, the confidence level in your receivers and then the confidence level in your arm strength. And so all those things sort of added to the offensive line having to pass block for a very long time. Now, one of the upsides that I didn't talk about in Ethan White's commitment is the fact that both he and Michael Tarquin have blocked for a mobile quarterback and Anthony Richardson from Florida. So this is not going to be something that's new to them, the moving pocket. Uh, you know, knowing your quarterback is going to sometimes break the pocket and you're going to have to adjust to that. They're used to that. So that's also something that's going to help um, the offensive line from that standpoint. But, you know, you're going to have three guys that come in that are potential new starters. You could have a new, you know, left side of the offensive line, as you said, with Kingston and White both being there on the blind side. Uh, But I think from a talent standpoint and an expectation standpoint, and some of this also includes now that we've seen some development from the offensive line and we know Josh Henson as a as a as a coordinator and a coach and and this is something that we talked about when he was hired and even when Lincoln Riley was hired because you know he did this at Oklahoma where his offensive coordinator was his offensive line coach i think that's just a great dynamic offensively to have because obviously Lincoln is focused on the quarterback he's focused on the pass routes the passing game he's thinking you know, from a quarterback's perspective, he's a former quarterback. That's where he's looking at how can we be efficient, getting the ball downfield, making big plays, really stressing the defense in that sort of way. Josh Henson can really focus on the line and, and what's going on from a coordinator standpoint. You know, what's going on from a play calling standpoint? You know, how do we want to organize this? How do we have to make adjustments? And a lot of that happens at the offensive line. So when you have that, you know, those two guys both on the headsets, and they're communicating as to, okay, you know, what's going on right now with our pass protection? You know, what's going on with the run game? Should we lean more to the left side, the right side? Are we seeing any tendencies? Are we seeing the defense do anything adjustment-wise that we can exploit, take advantage of? That's that chess game that always goes on. You have somebody that's, you know, there that 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 has a coordinator experience that can see things from the perspective of a coordinator, not just like a, a line coach, not just a position coach, Talking to the guy that's calling the plays, who's the head coach, I just think that's a good dynamic offensively. You know, you and you are going to get, you know, hopefully Josh Henson at certain times say, hey, coach, we can run this ball now. You know, Travis Dye is getting 7.2 yards a carry. Coach, we continue to run the ball more than two times in a row and he can pound the table and have a little more sway on what's happening with the play calling. So, yeah, I I think that's a a very good dynamic, and that's something that people probably overlook that Lincoln Riley has done in his last two stops is having an offensive coordinator that's also his line coach. Also, could we uh, troll that all three of those guys, Tarquin, White, and Kingston, were all three-star prospects out of high school? Stars don't matter. (laughs) I just wanted to poke a little bit of fun. For everyone that still messaged me uh, mean things about you know, three-star offensive linemen are not that. Are when I say three-star linemen 
are fine to pick up. I'm not saying you just pick up three star linemen. I'm just saying there you don't you shouldn't crap on three star offensive linemen. You still want to get blue chip guys, yes, obviously, but you can develop guys into very very good players if they're three star offensive linemen. That's my argument. I'm just saying I'm just saying three star prospects can turn into very 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 good offensive linemen and starters for you and a high end draft pick. So Stop poo-pooing three-star offensive linemen out of high school. No, it's all especially about, it's on all, the West Coast. I mean, that yeah. we, we, we've talked about that on the lines, both lines. Not as much on the offensive line. I think you do have the occasional guys that are like franchise-level guys on the offensive line. It's definitely fewer and further between when you're looking for interior defensive linemen on the West Coast that are those level players. But – I think in general, when you're recruiting the lines on the West Coast, you're, you're going to have to put more on the back end of development and coaching and nutrition because you get a lot of guys like Chad Wheeler that are 255. And coming out of high school, Jared Kingston was 255 pounds. So it just took time for him to put on that weight and for you to project and, and know whether he's going to be able to play with that same athleticism or close to it with that extra weight. And so, you know, that's where you, you have to have an eye for that talent and see that 250 pound body in that frame and say, okay, we can put another 30, 40 pounds on this. And he's still going to be able to move like this. He's still going to be a guy that is, is able to be athletic and have good feet and, and play left tackle or, or be a guard or wherever you're going to put him on the offensive line. But USC still cycle wise out of high school, they want to get those five stars. They're still looking for that franchise offensive tackle, this just buys them another cycle, buys them another year to be able to establish the offense and be able to build relationships as a USC coaching staff and get that guy because they still want him. You know, whether uh, he's uh, on, the, on the West Coast or not, yeah, you want to be able to bring those guys in out of high school and have three years with them and not just have to have a quick turnaround. And Jerry Kingston is probably, if, if the offense plays well next year and he plays to the level that we all anticipate, he's going to be gone. You know, <laughs> uh, Michael, Michael Tarquin is probably going to be gone. He's a sophomore year. He's going to be a ju- junior next year. He's going to be able to be gone. So these guys are, you know, plug-in players, but you're not going to get a lot of time with them either. And I, I don't know, you know, how stressful or how, how difficult that is from a coaching standpoint. You know, bringing in a guy for a year and you basically have spring ball and the summer with him, and then, you know, he's got to know your system. Obviously, USC was able to do that and do it very well last year, so it seems like it can't be that difficult for them because they were able to get – well, you know, Caleb and Mario Williams, that's a different story because they were at Oklahoma and they knew that same offense, so I I think that's probably an exception. Uh, But the other guys that came in, like Bobby Haskins and Travis Dye and and Austin Jones and those players that didn't have any familiarity – from Oklahoma with the offense, they still came in and they played pretty well. I mean, it seemed like it was just going from day one and hopefully USC has that same success with those players. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch going forward, whether, and we talked about that with the defensive line, is that your strategy? Is that your approach? You know, we, we, we're confident we can have that year turnaround. We can plug in a guy, boom, he has a great year. And then he moves on to the NFL, you know, or do you feel better about having those, kids coming out of high school and being and knowing at least you have three years with them unless you know they don't play and then they want to transfer out themselves uh you know how do you approach that what's your philosophy i think what the offensive lines 
and the defensive lines, it's more tempting to go into the portal and get guys that are already physically developed because that takes the projection aspect out of evaluation. You don't have to look at a 250-pound kid and go, okay, how's he going to look at 285, 290? Is he going to be able to maintain his athleticism with all that weight? Now you just you look at Ethan White, and he dropped the weight. I mean, out of high school, he's 400 pounds. Of course, as an offensive line coach, you're going, geez, you know, can, can we get the weight down? That's what USC was trying to do with Maximus Kids. There was always the question of he has the talent, but he's 450 pounds or whatever. You got to bring him down and try to get him to 360. You got to try to get him down to 340, 330, where he can be more mobile and he can actually play every down of the game. He doesn't have to get pulled out in the middle of the game because he doesn't have the cardio for it. And, and so you take that out of the equation when Ethan White goes to Florida for a couple of years and he loses the weight and he does all that work there. And it's like, OK, you now you're getting ready made prospect and you plug him straight in. So, yeah, that's something that, you know, we're still kind of figuring out with the transfer portal, you know, what coaching staffs feel comfortable with what approach. And uh, it seems that USC's had success, though, being able to bring these guys in for a year uh, or two and be able to, to, to get them ready to go and playing and contributing right away i just quit did a quick google of maximus gibbs because i just wanted to see obviously he ended up at jackson state with Deion sanders before he left to colorado but i saw i see a hbcu football news site and it lists him at six foot seven 285 pounds there you go is, he's really put in a lot of work he's put <laughs> in a lot of work maybe a tapeworm in, in fact but um yeah so 285 pounds that's that's quite the uh that's quite the weight loss. Drop. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure that's a typo is what I'm saying. I, I think they meant. I caught that, Chris. I uh, caught that. I couldn't okay. catch it in your okay. voice. And, and I was I also said. being sarcastic about the tapeworm, just in case you were scurrying to go call a doctor. Well, that's what uh, triggered me to think, oh, maybe he does. Maybe he is <laughs> trolling me, but I couldn't catch it in your voice. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I hope he's doing well. Moving on to our next topic, which is still on the topic of offensive linemen. That is Jason Rodriguez, former four-star prospect out of uh, Oak Hill, California. He announced that he is hanging up his cleats. He is retiring from football. Jason Rodriguez has the distinction of, prior to Elijah Page, being the last consensus four-star offensive lineman that USC had signed out of high school. That was in the 2019 class. And for you and me, Gerard, Jason Rodriguez brings up a very distinct memory, at least for me, which is at the Under Armour camp at Mission Viejo and seeing him for the first time, this big six foot six, 320 pound guy and seeing, hey, this guy plays with an edge. This guy has some quick feet. This guy's got some athleticism, obviously has the size at six foot six, a hell of a handshake. I told people all the time, do not shake this guy's hand because he will leave you in a cast. And just an overall really nice kid. And, you know, unfortunately that it didn't work out for him in terms of getting playing time. You know, maybe he, he could have played left tackle, but we, we thought right tackle would have been the better fit for him. And then he ended up moving inside the guard, but just was never able to get any playing time, never broke into the two deep really. And I believe did not play this season or played at least one snap this year, but no starts. No significant game time experience in, in his uh, several years at USC, hanging up his cleats. And, yeah, I wish him the best moving on moving forward. Uh, a fellow cilantro boy, if you will, uh, Gerard. Yeah, it's interesting because we're really making a case for stars don't matter on the podcast uh, because Jason was 
one of the few players that USC assigned recently that did have four stars. That was a guy that had some ranking to him. And again, you know, it, it, there's some projection that goes on there. Obviously, he had some injuries and uh, that uh, slowed him down a bit. Uh, but one of those things that, yeah, in terms of depth, you know, it, it, it hurts USC to some extent. Um, they have to, you know, look at that as, okay, are we trying to replace a four-star off of our offensive line or are we trying to just replace a body? So um, we do expect that there's going to be probably some future losses at offensive line. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, after the spring, we're going to have to see what happens. One thing that I didn't mention about Ethan White is that originally a source had implied to me that he wasn't going to come in until after the spring. So we have not confirmed that yet with White, but that was one of the things uh, that I was told uh, when we broke the news that he was actually going to uh, officially visit USC last weekend. So that's going to be interesting to see, you know, if he's actually coming in afterward to obviously give him a little less time in the offense, and that's going uh, to put him back a little bit. And it will give, you know, some of the offensive linemen that are on the roster already uh, a, a, a little advantage in, in terms of competing for that left guard spot. Obviously, like we said, you know, we, you know second team, all SEC, you sort of pencil them in there. But, um, you know, that's not a foregone conclusion. You know, like mm-hmm. we talked about Cooper Lovelace and, and some of the players that uh, USC has, you know, we want to see some continued development there. And they've got, you know, some talent there, some 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 decent players. And so we'll see how that all shakes out. But um, if there were future, you know, players that end up, uh, you know, transferring out, that wouldn't be a shock to us. And so that's why, you know, originally we kind of looked at this as USC probably needs, you know, two to four offensive linemen. And depending on how many players transfer out, that's going to depend on whether you're at the higher end of that spectrum or the lower end of that spectrum. So, you know, if they actually after the spring go out and, and maybe try to get another offensive lineman, that's not impossible. That's not going to be surprising if they indeed lose another offensive lineman off the offensive line. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a position to watch after spring. I think the first two that come up in people's minds is obviously Caden Steffens and Andrews DeWork, who were both in that 2020 cycle uh, recruited by the previous staff and guys that just haven't really broken out yet in terms of pushing for the the two deep in any way. Uh, Caden and both of those and Andres were uh, scout team players this year on on the offensive line and Caden has battled a back injury. I believe he came in with a back injury. And then Andres, who I thought there was some some potential there, you know, being six foot seven, I believe he was like 295 out of high school, kind of moved him inside to guard. So just a really legitimate six foot seven kind of body type. But those are the two guys we'll be looking for in terms of what they decide to do moving forward. I think Andres is closer to being moving up in terms of competing for a rotational spot or at least you know pushing to 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 compete to to get on that 2d but i think that's where it is right now but we'll see what that looks like after spring and once the the dust settles and because they do obviously elijah page will be there in the spring and they have four more guys coming in uh from the high school ranks to to join and, and compete for playing time and push guys out of the 2d or for that scout team line and to, to get some reps in practice so we'll see what that looks like. Moving on, Gerard, Dylan Williams, 2024 linebacker, Long Beach Poly, no longer a USC commit, a surprise decommitment from the 2024 class, which we'll talk a little bit more about another decommitment that happened in the 2024 class that we forgot to touch on last week. But 
Dylan Williams, as you mentioned last week, is a must-get for USC in terms of keeping these guys home. And this is a guy who, as we projected, was going to be a national recruit. And we've kind of seen that kind of come to fruition over the last several weeks as these coaches are going out to colleges across the country. And Dylan Williams is blowing up with offers. Got Nebraska a couple hours ago. Got Tennessee yesterday. Alabama picked up that offer earlier this week. And, yeah, just the offers have been rolling in from all over the country for Dylan Williams. And Dylan Williams and you, Gerard, were actually able to get him on the phone and have a conversation with him. And you have a story up right now on useful.com, VIP. Maybe not give away all the secrets of that interview, but what were your takeaways from getting to talk with Dylan? USC is still under consideration. USC is still reaching out to him, and specifically he's spoken to Lincoln Riley recently. So I do expect him to be around USC here in the near future. Uh, he did make that junior day, that small, he was like 20-odd you know, odd kids that made the junior day, and hadn't been up to USC really since he decommitted. And you know that decommitment came off the heels of him getting a scholarship offer from Oregon, and we know that you know, there's been some conversations there, uh, support staff wise, which Oregon has, you know, done a good job really recruiting him and sort of eroding, you know, his, his interest in USC to some extent, but Dylan is going to continue to take visits to some other schools. You know, he's looking at Michigan and some other schools nationally, he wants to see more and it's understandable and particularly in the NIL era, I think the early commitments are going to slow down a bit because Kids want to hear as much from other schools and their collective as possible as to what type of deals are out there. And I'm not putting it on NIL uh, being the reason why he decommitted from USC. I think there were some other reasons. I think he talked a lot about his relationship with Coach Riley. Didn't talk a whole lot about his relationship with Brian Odom. So I think that's something that has to continue to build, um, even though he worked with Brian Odom over the summer and really was the only commitment that USC had that showed up to any of the camps, which to us was very surprising because you kind of thought, okay, you know, we'll see a handful of these guys show up to camps. Really the only <laughs> commitments that showed up were to the seven-on-seven -seven tournament that they had where they had uh, Christian Pierce and they had Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon uh, show up for, uh, for Los Alamitos. And that was, you know, because their high schools are in the tournament, but no commitments actually showed up to any of the camps, not even just the elite camps other than Dylan Williams. So it was a surprise to us that he decommitted and was a guy that, you know, was very vocal in the class and what have you. And, you know, it was a quick, sharp turn when he decommitted. But, you know, Lincoln Riley is obviously now more focused on the 2024 class and they're trying to kind of reel him back in. And I think for sure, you know, he is a guy that they want and they need to have in this class. He is a good player. He's a productive player. And he's a guy that has his best football ahead of him. He's going to play more inside linebacker uh, this year for Pauly. Um, the uh, defensive coordinator was fired. And so his linebacker coach is now going to be the defensive coordinator. And they're going to run him inside a little more. And his body is more of that of an inside linebacker. I think with today's college football defenses, everybody's running a 3-4 type of hybrid defense. Um, whether it's two gap or one gap, you know, it just depends. But even the tight front is really a, a three, four sort of hybrid front. And that's very popular these days. If you're anything under six, three, six, four, you're going to have to play off the line of scrimmage. You know, it's just really not uh, a good idea to have smaller, you know, sort of six, two, 
players, unless they're an exception to the rule and have really long arms to be at the line of scrimmage because you're going to be taking on, you know, those offensive tackles. And I think more than anything, you're seeing a lot of offenses like USC's use that second tight end more as an H-back and they're motioning him over and they're putting him uh, as an 11 personnel type of player that's going to be on that weak side. And so your weak side linebacker or, you know, an old four, three under, you'd say your strong side linebacker is having to take on a six, five, 260 pound tight end. And it's just difficult to not get overwhelmed at the line of scrimmage. Either you're gone an offensive tackle. That's going to be six, six, 300 pounds. You're going to be against a tight end. That's going to be, you know, six, five, two, 250, 260. And so nowadays your guys at the line of scrimmage, if they're playing that predator, that rush in, whatever you're, that guy's going to end up being 6'4", 260 pounds anymore. He's not going to be 6'2", 225. And Dylan Williams at this point is, you know, 6'2 and a half, 6'3", and he's about 215 pounds. So he's going to play off the line of scrimmage. I think he's a will. I think he's athletic enough to play the backside to clean up on plays. I don't necessarily know that he's going to be like a Mike linebacker, uh, but I think he's definitely a guy that's going to be an inside linebacker playing off the line of scrimmage, and that fits well for what USC wants to do and sort of uh, their their defense as it is. And so – you know, we'll see how that goes going forward. Obviously, they get Tackett Curtis, and I think he's going to be a player for them. We'll see, you know, how much they use Shelby off the line of scrimmage. He's going to be a guy that, you know, if he is, is able to, to just get the speed of the game and uh, be able to absorb enough uh, through fall camp and early in the season, I think within, you know, the first five games, you're probably going to see him make some splash plays as well. So uh, I think with Dylan Williams, that's a guy that uh, you still need and you didn't really get in this class. You know, I mean, if you got – Anybody that's that's similar to him in terms of playmaking ability, it's probably Mason Cobb. So we're going to see what happens with Mason Cobb versus Tackett Curtis. Who's playing Mike? Who plays Will? You know how that all goes, and, and and where Eric Gentry ends up in the grand scheme of things. Because I think that you have to move him eventually. I think you have to move him for uh, the sake of his NFL career. He's not going to play Mike linebacker in the NFL, um, and I think for the sake of the defense. He on the outside, to some extent, I think that's going to to help the defense tremendously. I, I think having him, again, throwing out the idea of him being sort of a nickel linebacker is a real interesting uh, uh, sort of wrinkle that USC could use in the future. Maybe not against every team, but against some of the better teams like Utah, like UCLA, like Oregon, like Washington. I think all those teams run the ball enough and use enough motion and use enough option in their offense that having Eric Gentry out in the hash mark or pinching him inside and having him be a pass rusher off the edge, just having him linger in that sort of hash curl area could be just really a, a, a great advantage for USC, a real wrinkle that teams didn't see last year and are going to have to adjust, you know, in the middle of the year, if he ends up being there, they're going to be like, okay, wow, we, we, we have film of him now being out there at like a Sam position really is how you would look at it traditionally. Um, but being kind of a nickel backer instead of having maybe Max Williams out there or a smaller player as a safety. And obviously, you know, the biggest advantage to that would be in the passing game, having him against some of these tight ends that absolutely scorched USC last year. And just rolling that into the other decommitment that occurred in the 2024 class last week that we forgot to touch on is Aaron Butler, the four-star top 100 athlete at a Calabasas high school he had the distinction of being actually the first prospect in any class, uh, transfer portal as well, to commit to Lincoln Riley when he joined uh, USC from Oklahoma. So he has that rare distinction. He has that that honor, but he has decommitted from the 2024 class. And Gerard, I feel like 
neither of us are shocked by this decommitment. Aaron Butler was someone who was not loving the recruiting process, but certainly taking in everything of the recruiting process, taking a lot of visits all over the country, was getting a lot of attention from schools all over the country, especially in the SEC. And I think he's going to be taking full advantage of the recruiting process moving forward. Will USC still be involved? Probably. He is a athlete prospect. I know he gets mad on social media if you do not refer to him as an athlete prospect because I believe he wants to play wide receiver at the next level. I think maybe projections are for him to be a defensive back, or at least that was what USC's projection was for him. But yeah, just a decommitment. Not really surprised by this one. USC's class now only has two commitments, Jason Robinson Jr. and Joey Olsen in the 2024 cycle. The funny thing is I would have totally predicted that Jason Robinson would have been the guy out of that group that would have decommitted first. Mm -hmm. So uh, Dylan Williams would have been the last guy. Um, Aaron Butler, like you said, not a real big surprise. I think, A, again, you know, NIL is going to undermine a lot of early commitments because these college coaches are going to be like, hey, man, you know, you're not going to get the offers and the looks that you want from other schools. And, you know, you, you want a bidding war and that kind of thing. There's people that are going to be in their ears. And that's going to, I think, for all schools, be an issue uh, with these early commitments. It could be one of the big changes that we see from the recruiting process where guys are not apt to commit uh, so early and everybody's going to kind of wait to the end of the summer and then do the whole, you know, I want to commit before my senior season thing. But I even think that, to some extent, might be slowing down. And we'll see if there's going to be an early signing period in the future, and that could totally throw it out the window altogether. But with Eric Butler... Yeah, he looked at himself kind of as an Adoree and then kind of more as a receiver. And I think that was always, you know, the question mark with USC really just specifically looking at him uh, mostly entirely as a defensive back. Now, it's true that, you know, Dante Williams is the one that had the relationship with him. And this kind of was the same thing with Jason Mitchell to some extent where a lot of people said, okay, you know, offense is where he wants to play, but USC is recruiting him on defense. And we didn't know if that was USC's recruiting him on defense or it's just Dante Williams is the one that has a relationship and is the lead recruiter. But over time, you start to see, okay, the conversations are almost strictly about that player playing defense. And so that's something that I think was always a little bit of an issue with him, a question mark with him, because he ultimately looks at himself uh, as an offensive player as much as a defensive player. And certainly at the high school level, I mean, he does a lot for Calabasas as an offensive player. Uh, we got some ISO film of him last year, and he had a couple touchdowns. And so – I understand where, you know, he feels maybe, you know, he needs to look at some schools that are going to tell him what he wants to hear. USC and it looks at him and says, you know, we project him as a, a defensive back. And maybe in the future that changes, maybe they reevaluate his film. It is interesting that, you know, with Dylan Williams and Aaron Butler, those are Lincoln Riley commits. They're not Dante Williams interim coach commits. And Dylan Williams, you know, I, I wasn't sure. I, I I wasn't 100% sure when we were talking during our interview if he committed right before Lincoln Riley was hired or it was right after Lincoln Riley. And he said, no, I was committed or I got the scholarship offer from Lincoln Riley the day he was hired. He actually came down the Long Beach Poly, and that's when I got my scholarship offer from USC. So, you know, this is one of those things where it's um, not an issue where it's the old coaching staff or interim staff that was offering these guys. Jason Robinson was actually a, a, an offer and a commit, uh, the wide receiver out of Long Beach Poly, uh, during Dante Williams' interim 
head coaching stint. So with Butler and Williams, uh, these are guys that are actually committed to Lincoln Riley. So that's interesting. That's that's worth noting. And we'll see, you know, if if they're able to um, reel them back in, you know, what what USC does going forward. Uh, again, I think with Aaron Butler, it's it's sort of, you know, it, it, does he want to play defensive back? Is he more open to being just a defensive back? Or does he feel like he wants to play both ways? And has USC changed their tune now that he's decommitted and, and say, okay, well, you know what? We think you're able to play both ways. Uh, with Dylan Williams, it's just, hey, you know, you got to just recruit him harder and, and continue to build that relationship and uh, keep him away from Oregon because I think Oregon is definitely the leader there right now. Keep him away from Oregon, he says. Now, keep it rolling with 2024 class. We have a bunch of new 2024 offers, just a bunch of offers in general. But similar to last week, we're only really going to focus on the 2024 class because we don't have time to worry about the 2025s, the 2026s right now, and soon will be the 2027s. We're just going to focus on 2024 because that is the upcoming looming cycle and close uh, 15 plus offers. I believe it was 15 plus last week. So the board is churning for USC and assistants that are all over the country right now, hitting up multiple schools throughout the week. So I'm just going to run down through these offers real quick. And then maybe I'm going to comment on some of the more interesting ones. Gerard, you can do the same, but right off the top, Charlotte, North Carolina, defensive line prospect, Bryce young. Yes. Another Bryce young, the son of Bryant young, as Gerard was explaining before we started recording, recording a super bowl champion, former first round pick defensive lineman out of Notre Dame. So you have to figure the fighting Irish are favorites in that one. You have edge mountain, Utah, Pass rusher DeVoe Ma'a Tuataga. He is a unranked prospect, I believe, but six foot six, getting a lot of attention here. Fremont three-star inside linebacker Naki Tuakoa, who I did an interview with the other day. I'll have a story up on him coming up soon. Chicago Heights, Illinois cornerback Austin Alexander. Marietta, Georgia linebacker Ashton Woods. Marietta, Georgia linebacker Wendell Gregory, a four-star prospect. Ashton is a three-star prospect. Tucker, Georgia linebacker, CJ Jackson, Atlanta, Georgia, edge rusher, Cameron Fountain. He is also a six foot six prospect. Phoenix, Arizona, unranked running back slash safety. Christian Clark, he is offered as a running back. And I believe Georgia also recently offered. So he is unranked now, but I foresee that changing in the near future. Dakula, Georgia, defensive end, Justin Green. He is a four star prospect. Fairfield, California defensive tackle, Jericho Johnson, amazing name. Tacoma, Washington offensive tackle, Marquise Thorpe Taylor, Conroe, Texas defensive lineman, Joseph Jonah Ajanye, Humble, Texas defensive back, Braylon Connolly, Duncanville, Texas defensive tackle, Alex January, Fort Lauderdale, Florida running back, Jordan Little, and most recently, Yelm, Washington linebacker, Braden Platt, who is a consensus four-star prospect, top 100 prospect in the 24-7 sports uh, rankings, and he is a state champion in the shot put and can be considered a running back prospect for a lot of schools. So he is a two-way guy. Kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Julian Simon, who was also a two-way athlete prospect out of Washington. So, Gerard, just kind of my first takeaway looking at the list, I think – Defensive tackle Jericho Johnson is going to be a big fan favorite among the Paris style. One, because he is a local California kid and he is a big body 
at six foot four, 300 pounds. These are the guys you don't really find all that often on the West Coast. I believe he is a four star on the composite, three star in the 24 7 sports rankings. But I can assure you that Jericho Johnson is going to be a defensive lineman we're going to be asked about frequently in the coming months, Gerard, at six foot four, 300 pounds. Those are the big bodies that USC fans want to see on the defensive line. Speaking of big bodies, we have the defensive tackle, Alex January, who is almost, uh, who is just a little bit bigger than Jericho Johnson at six foot four, 325 pounds. So we've seen two big boys USC has offered on the defensive line. So that I know is making a lot of USC fans happy with those offers as USC is going to the Big Ten. The other interesting one, Austin Alexander, a three-star prospect in the 24-7 sports rankings. A was a Wisconsin commitment when Dante Williams offered him, but as of today, is officially a Wisconsin decommitment. Decided to back off his pledge from Luke Fickle, and the Badgers said USC uh, is going to get or possibly get a spring visit from him. So it looks like all the offers now that have been coming in for him are making him say, hey, let's take a second. Let's look at my let's look at my process a little bit harder and take a step back. And then the other thing besides, you know, a bunch more Georgia offers. I feel like USC has offered like 900 Georgia kids in the last two weeks. But they have offered a lot of interesting linebackers. And I feel like linebacker is going to be a very critical part to this 2024 class for Brian Odom, specifically the inside linebackers, because, you know, you got Eric Gentry going through junior season. He could be gone to the NFL. Shane, Shane Lee. He is entering his final year of eligibility. He's gone after this season. Mason Cobb, who I believe is going to be a one-and-done kind of deal, come here, get some more tape, take his chances with the NFL. He could be gone after this season, too. So that's three of your your projected top three guys for next season gone. I don't think there's a lot of inside depth behind them. You have Taka Curtis, you know, Carson Tabarucci. You know, he was injured all last year, still learning the position. Garrison Madden. You, you need some more bodies. So I think they're going to hit inside linebacker pretty hard in this cycle. I could see them taking, I mean, I would say at least three inside linebackers, maybe four. And just throwing it out there, you know, I think you could kind of really play for all four of the guys you sign or all three of the guys you sign just being out of California alone. You know, looking at uh, Kingston Viamaasa, that is obviously a very big guy on their board. You have Naki Tuakoa, who I watched his tape. That guy hits hard out of Fremont, California, the Oakland area. Go watch his tape. It's so much fun. Not quite the the heavy hitter as uh, Tackett Curtis, but he has some monster hits, and he is fearless attacking the ball. And, you know, you could also go with uh, Jordan Lockhart. And, you know, I think you could go all local for your linebacker class with, with the guys that they've offered so far. But... A lot of linebacker, a lot of linebacker offers have been going out across the country, and there's some interesting options that Brian Odom is uh, cultivating. And then throw in Dylan Williams. That was the last one. Throw in Dylan Williams, Kingston, Naki Tuakoa, and then Jordan Lockhart. Those are all California kids, and I think fans would be ecstatic by that class. Yeah, I think you said it. You could probably stay local and just grab, you know, the top three guys. Uh, that are in California, and you could kind of put it to bed for a lot of Trojan fans. I think if you were able to get the recommitment of Dylan Williams, who we just talked about, you're able to get Jordan Lockhart to decommit 
from Ole Miss. And then uh, Kingston Valiamuasa. I think that would be a tremendous threesome of uh, linebackers right then and there. You wouldn't have to go to Georgia and try to go against uh, not only the SEC, the collectives, and uh, the national champs. Um, you would just be able to sit back at home and, and land a, a bunch of local players. So I think that's probably the interesting thing about the amount of scholarship offers. And listen, talked about it before. Scholarship offers kind of like flowers on the first date. In fact, it's not even that anymore. It's basically, hey, man, like your film. Here's my card. <laughs> it's the phone number. It's the phone number. Like, hey, it's not even for the first date. It's just the it's, uh, it's just like the phone number. It's just get your the number. digits. Yeah, it's, it's the digits. It's really not very significant in a recruitment. I think only people that think it's significant anymore are probably the kids and maybe some of their parents. But I think we all understand that these scholarship offers are basically just a public acknowledgement of who USC is recruiting. Uh, it's not a whole lot more than that. But we see where, you know, they've got a bunch of, you know, sort of foot, feet in the door of, um, you know, out-of-state recruits and trying to line up, okay, who do we have a, a good relationship with? Who do we get traction with? Who comes in for unofficial visits? And then trying to line up who you're going to get in for an official visit. And some of these guys, if they don't come in during the spring for unofficial visits, then you're looking at potentially bringing them in over the summer just to get some sort of traction with them. And I think they're going to have more guys that they will have a chance this summer to be able to close with than they have last summer. Because last summer, a lot of those kids are looking at the team and they're looking at a team that won four games. So it's, okay, Lincoln Riley's coming in, they're going to be much better, but how much better are they really going to be? Now, to some extent, there's going to have to be some salesmanship on the defense because the defense didn't play incredible last year. And there's going to be a lot of negative recruiting around Alex Grinch. You know, some of that's going to be uh, from the Trojan fan base. I mean, because that's been something that has gone on for, you know, the last few months about how they need to fire Alex Grinch, how they need to fire Alex Grinch. And of course, other coaching staffs are going to use that and say, look at uh, the, even the, the USC fan base um, on social media saying, you know, they need to uh, fire the defense coordinator. Why would you go there when the defense coordinator is not going to be there next year? So that's going to be something USC has to work around. Okay, last year, last summer, they had to work around the whole team. They had to work around how bad and irrelevant USC has been on the national scene for the last, you know, five years, six years. Now it's just really selling defensive recruits on, listen, we're going to turn this thing around. We didn't play great last year, but we still won 11 games. Um, we're working with, you know, new players. Plugging some guys in, you know, we, we understand the, 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 the team more. We understand the personnel we have more, and we're going to be better defensively. For some of these players, some of these linebackers, it's going to be, well, show me, right? It's, it's not going to be, I'm going to commit, and I'm going to, I'm going to trust that the defense is going to improve. Some of it may be, well, you're going to have to show me that improvement. And I think, you know, going back to talking about Dylan Williams, that's something that, you know, he's going to watch. He, he didn't say that specifically. It wasn't something that, you know, he really talked about openly. And a lot of kids, they just don't want to criticize the teams. You know, they're smart about it. They understand, you know, these coaches can end up other places. And so they don't want to, you know, get on a soapbox and start talking about you know, how bad the defense was or how bad the offense was or how bad their position was at a particular school. They're just going to look at it and think, okay, I'd like to see what they're going to do this next season and how they develop. So I think on the defensive side of the ball, you could see more uh, in terms of traction recruits coming in over the summer than you are going to be on offense. Offense, I think by the summer you're looking at your core of the class and you're, okay, we're, we're going to probably wrap this up by summer. Most of the top players 
unless again nil sort of is this cloud that hangs over everybody's head and these kids kind of get you know cold feet i just don't think that's going to happen this summer i think by this summer i think you'll still see a bunch of commitments in july and august i think for usc the kids that are going to come in they're going to take their visits they're going to be sold on lincoln riley they're going to see what the offense looked like last year they're going to say that's going to be the offense in the future i want to play a part of this i want to be you know a first round draft pick uh, like some of these other players that um, you know USC has turned out and Oklahoma turned out. So from that standpoint, I think you're going to see you know more commitments and, and it'll be clearer as to you know what USC looks like offensively. And it's not like they didn't do that to some extent last season. I mean, I think Lincoln Riley's reputation just coming from Oklahoma was enough that you know they had Malachi Nelson, you had Makai Lemon, you had Zach Branch already committed. It was really offensive line where it was like okay. Some of these guys, you know, they're, they, you know, we're, we're going to see if they're able to actually close the deal with some of these guys. And a guy like Elijah Page, it took midseason for him to make that determination. No, I don't want to go to Notre Dame. That offense looks anemic. I'm going to go to USC. Obviously, the offense has turned it around. But for defense, yeah, I think we're still kind of at that point where there's some convincing that needs to be done. And some of these kids just may not have faith. And certainly when you're talking about the out-of-state recruits, that's – what's toughest that's where you're, you're you haven't you're asking those guys to take a leap of faith when the defense has not necessarily been fantastic so that's where recruiting local kids becomes a little bit easier and there's not a lot of local you know offers here right there's there's a couple of kids out of california they've offered 11 players from georgia in the in the past month or so that's you know that's going to be difficult go out to georgia like i said you've got the sec collectives that are all recruiting georgia um, you have uh, Georgia, who's a national champ. Georgia's going to get who Georgia wants right now. And Alabama's going to get who Alabama wants uh, that doesn't go to Georgia. <laughs> and a lot of those kids are going to go to Florida and Florida State, et cetera, et cetera. And USC is going to try to find and to navigate themselves into some players that they may have an angle with. Maybe somebody has a relative that went to USC. Maybe, you know, a former teammate, there's a connection there. You know, something of, of that extent. I mean, USC got the commitment of Mikhail Williams, former five-star out of Georgia, because his half-brother, uh, Mike Trigg, was on the roster. And so there was a connection there, and it came out to visit, et cetera. But it was obviously going to be a difficult commitment to keep, even if USC had a decent season. Even if USC won nine games, and then Georgia's going on and winning the national championship, and Georgia decides, yeah, we really want Mikhail Williams, and we think he is a five-star which originally they didn't recruit him quite as hard. It, it was one of those things where Mikael Williams and uh, Christian Miller both were sort of getting slow played to some extent by Georgia. And it came, you know, a little later in the year where they started to go, okay, you know what, these are guys that we want to go after. Bada boom, bada bing. You know, they all of a sudden, they they, they flipped to, to Georgia. You know, Christian Miller was uh, basically a, a silent commit to USC over the summer and then just didn't commit, didn't commit, and then ends up going to Georgia. So it's tough. To put your eggs in that basket, you know, going into to George, going into the South um, at the linebacker position, you know, tough, not as tough as defensive tackles. You know, when, D, when USC offers defensive tackles from the deep South, I kind of roll my eyes. So that's where you get a guy like Jericho Johnson, who people have already asked me about, you know, why isn't USC offered Jericho Johnson? Why isn't USC offered Ju Jericho Johnson? At least they've offered him at this point. It didn't take till May, till the summer where, you know, you're way behind on his recruitment. USC has not recruited the Bay Area very well. They haven't put a lot into recruiting the Bay Area in the past. Now at least you have Zach Hansen there, who's a, a position coach that has actually got an area, um, and he's from the, the Northern California area. So that's taking a step in the right direction. Uh, we'll see, you know, how much they follow up. 
Uh, certainly Jericho Johnson's already a Pac-12 uh, recruit that everybody's, you know, had at the top of their list. So it's it's they're behind a little bit, but not as bad as I think it would be if they, you know, turned around and offered in May and summer, which is, you know, sometimes what USC did. And in certain situations, there were, you know, high four-star guys in the Bay Area that USC didn't offer at all. <laughs> they just ignored, like, you know, we just don't recruit the Bay Area. And I think it's difficult, you know, to do that, to ignore any, you know, region or area in California and decide, okay, well, we'll just make it up by going into East Texas or going in to, to, to Houston or going in to some of these areas. Again, you've got to cherry pick those areas. You really cannot depend upon those areas uh, to, to get any specific position or any bunch of recruits every single year. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, these Georgia offers are like, they're okay. We'll see, you know, who, uh, has the interest that comes out here and, and, and likes USC enough and, and builds that bond and what have you. But the ones that are the most intriguing offers are always going to be the ones that are in the Arizonas, the Californias, you know, maybe up in the Northwest to some extent, USC really hasn't had a lot of success there. Uh, but that's something where, you know, if they start to become more relevant and they're able to dominate the Pac-12 and then go on to the Big Ten, that will be an area where they probably have more success. So, you know, we're going to see how that goes. They've got Washington and Oregon on the schedule next season. Got to beat both those teams. You want to be up there in the Northwest? You want to get the the, the annual by annual five-star from Seattle area? You got to go and beat those teams year in and year out or you're going to lose those guys. And with that, I think it's time we take our break for the first half of the show. We'll come back. We'll hit on some quick hitter notes. We'll do do a review of the transfer portal, what USC needed when the window started and where they ended up after the window started. Maybe I'll share my grades with you, Gerard. You can uh, you can uh, crap all over them uh, per usual. Per usual. That's no, not I'm, I'm being a little harsh. Apple. I'm being a little I'm being a little harsh on Gerard, but we'll see how it turns out. We'll see how it turns out. But we'll be right back after this quick break. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Gerard, we're back. How was that break? It was great. Have you gotten Have you gotten over your self-deprecating uh, self to humor yet? That's the question. No, that's something I've had since uh, middle school, baby. That's 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 my sweet spot. Self-deprecation <laughs> is my that's sweet your wheelhouse. spot. That's my wheelhouse, baby. That's where I made my brand. That's where I'm going to keep going until all falls apart. I'm going to keep it that way. So let's move on. We have some maybe some kind of quick hitter notes that we want to go through they're not maybe not super in detailed stuff knowing gerard they might become super in detailed stuff but we have four topics to hit on before we get to our 
transfer target review uh, for the full uh, first window of the transfer portal. So let's just hit on some quick things. Let's start with Deuce Robinson. Gerard. We talked about him last week and where that recruitment was going, but it seems right now that maybe USC is getting a little bit, picking up some steam as we head into the final week of his recruitment, if you will. Yeah, USC went in-home for their last in-home visit with Lincoln Riley. You only get one a year. And so, you know, this was kind of it for them, potentially. We're not sure if they're going to get Deuce Robinson back on campus uh, for another visit at some point. You know, he was in town to work out for the Dodgers. And we talked a little bit last week about baseball. And right now he's definitely focused in on, you know, where – his potential lies with the MLB and, and the draft and, and whether he can be drafted high enough to where it would uh, force his hand to go to baseball over football. Right now, he's still of the mindset, I'm going to college to play baseball and football. And last week, we talked about him being very much, you know, kind of like Georgia's to lose. You know, that was the feeling that everybody had that you know, Georgia had kind of over the course of winning a national championship and showcasing the tight end position was kind of the school to beat. But, you know, Blair Angulo goes out to Hawaii. It's, you know, uh, Ryan Abraham and uh, five stars only. Jarrett Perez is out there, and they got to hang out, and they got to talk to Deuce Robinson a bit. And everybody kind of came away less convinced that he was going to Georgia. And so, you know, I've said this before, and, and we've written in the war room quite a few times, you know, USC circles are still very confident that Deuce Robinson is going to end up a Trojan. Uh, but you know what? That circle has not always had the best read. There's been instances where they were confident about other players. And, you know, I was hearing from sources outside of those circles that you know, a player was going elsewhere. And that turned out to be true. So I'm hesitant to just go with one side of the story, if you will, when it comes to a player's recruitment. And while that's been continuous and that's been really the case throughout the year that, you know, USC um, circle type sources have, have always felt like Deuce Robinson was going to be a Trojan. And I mean, to be fair, I, I think that he's made that, you know, so much uh, known to them, if you will, uh, silently maybe, but <laughs> that doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, it stands to reason. Um, he knows who he's talking to. He knows whose allegiances are to who. Um, but uh, there was still a lot of confidence uh, around Georgia. Um, but there's been, you know, even lately, a little bit of uptick and talk of Texas to some extent. And Texas is not completely out of it. Um, we know your boy, um, Mr. Manning, Mr. Flat Earther. My boy. Forever. Fighting boy. Flat Earthers. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a connection that Deuce Robinson made um, over the years and really kind of over the past year. Uh, he, he, he hung out with them a little bit. And I, I don't know how strong that connection really is. I think it's more of baseball. You know, I think at it, it, it Georgia and certainly at Texas, you know, baseball, um, the recent success has, has definitely been there. Whereas USC is just trying to figure out, you know, like what's going on with baseball. You know, they haven't been good in, in quite some time and are in a transition with the new staff. And that's obviously a big factor in his recruitment. Um, but I think in terms of relationships, and um, again, this is, I think, where, you know, USC sources are, are very confident. It's because he's, he's great friends with Zach Branch. He's great friends with Malachi Nelson. He's very comfortable around all of those players. So an event where you have all those players, 
uh, and you had numerous USC commits at the Polynesian Bowl, it kind of stands to reason that he would be comfortable and he'd probably throw a fight on here and there, and there would be a lot less uh, people convinced coming away from that event that he was a lock for Georgia. So, I mean, that's sort of where we stand. It, it does feel better, um, you know, talking to people that USC's not, you know, out of it. I don't think USC was ever out of it. You know, obviously, Lincoln Riley going in home, you know, they're not out of it, but slipping, I guess, to some extent and no longer being at least right there with Georgia uh, falling behind. I think there was some talk even from some of the national analysts that, you know, USC was running third behind Texas. I never believed that, but uh, running at least second behind Georgia. And at this point, it just seems like it's a bit more of a coin flip. And certainly there are aspects that he really likes USC. And then there are aspects where it's understandable that he really likes Georgia. Yeah. I mean, uh, Blair and Gulo, said something similar in that it's very close to call right now that crystal ball is still in for Georgia but as you mentioned coin flip is the word that keeps or the phrase that keeps getting thrown out when it comes to Deuce Robinson and he spent a whole maybe not a whole week but several days in Hawaii with Zach Branch in his ear Malachi Nelson in his ear Makai Lemon in his ear so USC does certainly have some momentum thanks to their their three five-star committed signed prospects excuse me signed prospects enrolled freshmen right now so We'll see what that looks like in the end. And, Gerard, it sounds like maybe February 1st our live show could be a little bit lit. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we look at Deuce Robinson, uh, you know, in the last live show for the December signing period, it was Mateo Ungolan. That was it. That was the only guy that we were waiting on to see, you know, which way was that going to go? Was USC going to make a comeback? And certainly I will say this flat out. Deuce Robinson has always been way more USC's to lose than Mateo Ungolan ever was. You know, we had talked throughout the year, the ebb and flow of trying to convince Mateo Ungalele that USC was going to be a champion again, that the football was going to be relevant there again. And it just seemed like they were trying to convince him continually, you know, no matter what the visits were, uh, that uh, USC was the place to be. And there were so many instances where you go, well, this just looks like it lines up really well for him. And yet he was talking about going to visit some other school and didn't really know when he was going to be back at USC. I think, you know, the driving force for USC for a while was his father. And Mateo Uangalele just didn't really have the the feel for USC and really comes from an era where USC was just bad in football and didn't really have people to tell him a whole lot otherwise. But with Deuce Robinson, I mean, USC, I think for sure coming out of the summer was the clear leader and has had a very good um, position on him for a while. It's just, you know, I mean, Georgia's done everything. I mean, Georgia, in, in, to some extent, has been what USC you thought was to Mateo Ungale in terms of, okay, you have got Tui, Tui Polotu having this great year. The blueprint is there for exactly how you want to be used and how you can be used to be successful to get drafted as a first-round draft pick. Uh, maybe overall the defense didn't play well, but your position has been developed to the point where, you know, he's one of the top players in the nation, number three in sacks playing on the outside and the inside. Um, you know, USC close to home. They have the music uh, program that is second to none that Oregon cannot compete with. You know, all these other schools that you're looking at cannot compete with. The networking in L.A., entertainment capital of the world. Eugene, sorry, just not quite the same. And you look at it and you check all the boxes. Well, that's sort of what Georgia's done with Deuce. I mean, Georgia has 
the tight end position just rolling. Now, potentially, they could lose some coaches there, and that might change some things. But the baseball side, winning a national championship, you know, you're checking boxes for Deuce Robinson, but he still could end up at USC just like Mateo Ongalele ended up at Oregon. That's recruiting for you. You're saying potentially reverse Uno card going on here this Bizarro time around. Superman type of world. Yeah, that's what we're looking at. Okay, okay. Well, we'll keep – well, the next time we talk – We'll probably be talking about it live, and we'll see what happens with the Deuce Robinson recruitment. Should be a fun day overall. Yeah, Roderick Pleasant also committing on February 1st. And I think we should play that into another 2023 prospect, that being Warren Roberson taking a visit out to California, a late visit out to California. And, Gerard, you were on the Warren Roberson beat early, but potentially this is the other defensive back USC has been desperately trying to add to the class, it seems like. This has been that guy. You know, we talked about the nickel safety and that guy, whether it was uh, Braxton Myers, who was the first commitment, who looked like he was going to be a safety that plays corner, that USC recruits as a boundary corner, but probably ends up playing more safety. Then it was Warren Roberson. Then it was Tyler Scott. Then it was J.C. Hart, and now we're back to Warren Wilberson, who took an unofficial visit to USC last weekend. Um, not a lot of intel from that visit. You know, Warren Wilberson is still committed to TCU. I'm not going to rehash his recruitment. We did that last week, but still committed to TCU. Um, it sounds like he's going to probably end up at Austin for a visit this weekend, which I believe will be an official visit because I don't think he's taken any other official visits to this uh, point. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I, I don't believe he took any other official visit other than to USC over the summer. So that's going to be interesting. I know Arizona State is still working on him. They have a connection there. Uh, Brian Carrington, who was a uh, offensive analyst who worked with the running backs when he came to USC uh, from Texas. He was uh, originally from Texas and uh, was somebody that recruited um, uh, Bryshawn Robinson to Texas uh, from Arizona. So. He kind of garnered a bit of a reputation as a, a really good support staff recruiter and came to USC and really wasn't involved with too many players uh, that actually were recruited out of high school for USC. He was more involved in recruiting some of the transfers that came over, guys like Malcolm Epps um, that uh, came over from Texas and transferred over to USC. He was at USC for a year, as I said, as an offensive analyst and um, was working his way into becoming uh, a staff member. He wanted to be a full-time assistant coach. And obviously that didn't work out. USC uh, fires Clay Helton's staff. And um, he ends up at uh, TCU as a recruiting coordinator. And obviously had a very good relationship with Warren Robertson there. And now he's over at ASU as a defensive backs coach. And so that's where Arizona State's angle and connection comes in with Warren Robertson. But he's going to be visiting Texas this weekend. And this is the last weekend you're going to be able to take visits. So unless he took some sneaky you know, visit to st- – Arizona State midweek. We haven't really heard about that. Seems like Arizona State is on the outside looking in. Um, the Texas visit is going to be interesting. They offered him a scholarship at some point during the summer, and they were late to the table for Warren Roberson. And I think that's always been a little bit of an issue uh, for him. And, uh, you know, TCU obviously having that great season where they beat Texas and they beat all those schools. But that 65 point drubbing that they took in the national championship game and the fact, and I don't know how much this really plays into it, 
Uh, I've tried to ask around. Unfortunately, the uh, coaching staff is new at Red Oak. Uh, they, they had a coaching staff. They actually won nine games, but decided to part ways with their head coach. And so it's a new staff there. And it's just been hard to get any real good, solid intel on what Warren is doing right now. But um, I think, uh, you know, with, with, with TCU being close to home, uh, they do have four safeties that are already signed in the 2023 class. So that's interesting. I mean, Roberson has always kind of looked at himself playing cornerback, so I don't know if that has a huge impact on his decision. Uh, but certainly if, you know, he has any thoughts about playing safety, you know, the recruit four safeties basically over you. Because, I mean, they got quite a few of those guys committed after he had already committed. He committed, I believe, on Halloween. So, yeah, TCU – you know, right now it's it's definitely there's a lot of smoke there that he's not going to end up at TCU. Uh, we'll see how that shakes out. I'm sure that they have you know some last minute cards to play, but definitely good news for USC that they just got him back on campus and got him back on campus uh, unofficially. I won't say of his own dime these days with collectives and NIL and everything, but he definitely uh, you know didn't need to come back out to USC and visit. And um, you know from the uh, USC circle side of things, if you will, um, you know, that side of things, there's optimism, there's general optimism, not a whole lot of specifics to really report or anything that, you know, I, I feel like, OK, you know, this is reason to really feel like he's going to end up at USC right now. Um, you know, certainly I think that uh, there's a there's a possibility of that, um, but I kind of feel like it's 50 50 and we kind of have to see what happens with this Texas visit and see if there's, you know, more information that comes out of there. I, I think, you know, certainly Texas being in Texas, there's probably going to be more connections there, and there's probably going to be more talk coming away from that visit as to, you know, what he's potentially going to do. Uh, the the visit to USC was just, uh, like I said, kind of a, a kind of quiet, under-the-radar type of thing. And, um, again, you know, the coaches that are at Red Oak, none of those guys really even talked to World Roberson since uh, Christmas. So uh, there's, you know, there's, there's definitely some uh, sort of, uh, you know, we're not really sure what's going on in his recruitment right now, uh, even at the local level. Yeah. So possibly another firework for February 1st or in February, an interesting recruitment that has taken a long time, you know, seems like there, this has started since the golden hour official visit for Warren Robinson. Thought he was going to commit, didn't commit, TCU commit. TCU has a great season, but he doesn't sign early signing period. Door's still a little bit open. And now the latest visits he's taking as he, as he wraps up his recruitment. So Warren Robeson, going to be an interesting one down to the wire. Let's move on to – so we went with 2023s. Let's jump a little bit ahead to 2025. Yes, 2025. USC was one of the unique teams in the country because they held a 2025 commitment from orange athlete Jet White. That is no longer the case. Like Aaron Butler, Jet White has decided to take a step back from his USC commitment and play the field, if you will. And in addition to that update, Jet White is also transferring from orange to Los Alamitos. Now, I'm not surprised that Jet White is transferring schools. I am a little bit surprised it's not a Trinity League school. He's actually going to Los Al which has kind of lost some of their recruiting juice with Bruce Bible going to uh, Sierra Canyon up there. But Losal looks like they're still getting some kids in. So Jet White will be much closer to me, Gerard, right up the street in Losal. So Jet White decommitted again. Don't really need to worry about this, but just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, 
you know, interesting. He committed early. I think they felt like, hey, you know what? Get our foot in the door with USC. He was another interim coach commitment when Dante Williams was the interim coach at USC. And uh, talking to his father was like, hey, you know, if he gets hurt, he's got that scholarship offer from a scholarship offer from USC. You can't beat that degree, et cetera, et cetera. You know, okay. I mean, that that's not really how it works. You don't get a scholarship offer and it's like, oh yeah, you know, you're locked into going here. You know, coaching staffs change and what have you. And, you know, that's not the way it's going to work. Um, but, you know, it, it's not uh, really relevant at this point. Um, he didn't get hurt and he's decommitted at this point. Uh, he had some rough outings last year. You know, we had some ISO film of him that we were going to put up and um, we kind of learned from the Grant Bucky thing that the peristyle can't always handle, um, you know, games where players are not scoring touchdowns every other clip. And so, you know, we kind of uh, ate some of that film that we had. But um, he, he still, you know, definitely got some improvement and some proving to do um, at some of the national camps. You know, he was, I thought he was very good at Under Armour. I think he played really good in, um, you know, a couple of the uh, Stars tournaments that I saw him play at. Uh, you saw him play a little bit at the overtime tournament. which yeah, he was um, a young guy thrown into the fire against some big, big tight names. But I would also come back and say he's also very young, Gerard. Very young. Um, certainly, you know, it's got the height and the build. Um, you know, of a player that's not very young. I mean, he's a good, you know, legitimate 6'1", 6'2", and long arms. And so you see why, you know, USC pulled the trigger on him early. And he had a bunch of scholarships very early on. But the 2025 defensive back class is stacked. You know, I mean, it's just stacked at modern day. You don't even have to look outside of modern day. It's stacked. So you got guys like Chuck McDonald. Um, you've got uh, Darius Dixon. You've got quite a few very good players that we have seen and so, you know, you know, White's going to look around and I'm sure USC is going to look around as well. And we'll see if uh, they meet somewhere in the middle in the future. But, um, yeah, a very early commitment and, and these type of commitments, you know, they, they rarely actually, you know, come to fruition. Um, you know, I think Jay Toya was really one of the few guys that had committed, you know, two, three years ahead of time. And uh, that one stayed, worked out well, too. Stayed committed well and decided to decommit during spring ball. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's so uh, you're saying. They're things. all cursed. All early commits are cursed, even if they uh, do sign. I'm trying to remember one that was that far in advance that actually stuck. I mean, David Sills didn't stick. It, it just very rarely happens where you have a super early, you know, two to three classes ahead of time where guys actually stay committed. And, and certainly a lot of. At this point in time in college football, so much is changing and so much is happening. Um, it definitely doesn't seem like something that uh, you necessarily put uh, a lot of um, eggs into the basket of, of the, the class. It's three years ahead of, of actually signing a letter of intent. And, you know, talked about how USC wants to recruit the best senior high school football players year in and year out. I just think that's def definitely the best philosophy to have. You want to get the guys that are playing well as seniors that have big senior years and not the kids that had big sophomore years and then sort of tapered out. And it looks like that, um, you know, you're, you're basically getting a, a, a the best of their sophomore year in high school, as opposed to them having that continued upward trajectory uh, of potential getting better and better each year as they get into college. Absolutely. But Gerard, we have to keep moving forward or yeah, looking ahead to 2026 for our next topic. And that is Lincoln Riley, ding, 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 has offered a quarterback in the 2026 class, Julian Lewis. Remember the name, Julian Lewis. He has the potential to be maybe the number one overall 
prospect in his cycle, and he's from Gerard, you guessed it, Georgia. USC has continued their run through the state of Georgia, six foot one, 175 pounds, playing at USC, or excuse me, Georgia's highest classification in the Peach State, won a state championship as a freshman, threw for 4,118 yards. 48 touchdowns against 11 or excuse me 12 interceptions already has 30 offers from across the country including Alabama, you know, South Carolina, Ohio State. He has a who's who's list of offers and USC joining the mix and we talked about how you know USC it's tough for them to recruit positions that are in the south and uh, defensive line or offensive line and such but where they do have an advantage is Lincoln Riley recruiting quarterbacks. And, yes, that is a long ways off. That feels like 20 years from now in 2026. But just wanted to make a note that USC, Lincoln Riley, has found a quarterback to target in 2026, Julian Lewis. There you go. And that and that's all Gerard needs. He doesn't need that, anything else. Yeah. He, he I, wants I, nothing I, else to say. He's got nothing. It's fine. A freshman from Georgia, yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right. And but I just want to he was in. I think what's significant about that is that he was on campus. He took a visit for their second kind of smaller junior day uh, past this past weekend. USC did offer. They didn't offer anyone out of that first one two weeks ago, did offer Julian Lewis. And they did did offer a 2025, excuse me, 2026 cornerback out of modern day whose name I'm blanking on. CJA Lockhart, I believe that's the name, but two offers came out of that visit. But yes, very, very underclassmen, freshman players, but did want to note Julian Lewis because that one is significant. Now, Gerard, let's play into some transfer target review. We had we made our when we this first started, we made kind of a list of transfer palooza of what USC needed to address for the for the for this window or what they could address and we kind of gave what they needed and we kind of talked about that and I went ahead and did some grading for USC's hall on offense and on defense what side of the ball do you want to start with let's start on offense I want to hear what you grade uh the running back position because it's changed I think from what we projected to what we see going into the spring because Austin Jones is returning. And I think when we started projecting, because the portal and was December 5th, we're coming away from USC playing such a great game against Notre Dame and looking at Austin Jones potentially having two more great games and then announcing he's going to NFL draft. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> Conference championship game wasn't a great game. And the bowl game was not a great game, particularly for the run game. I mean, that was where the run game in both of those games just didn't really show up for USC. And so, you know, going forward, they're going to have Austin Jones back, and then they gain another running back out of the portal. Yeah, I would give this grade, just for the strictly looking at it, running back overall, I'll give that overall grade at the end. But for running back, I gave it a B plus because I think – as you you alluded to at the top of the show when we were talking about Marshawn Lloyd, a combo back, and he kind of is similar to other guys on the roster already. In terms of you know Darren Barlow, Austin Jones, maybe a little bit heavier than those guys, but for the most part, is more or less kind of in that same category as them. He's had a knee injury in the past, but 
when healthy, he's been really, really productive. And, you know, DeMatha alum, me and him are the same in that regard. So can't go wrong there, but has been productive in the SEC level. And I did think they needed some more depth in that department, specifically some veteran experience because they will be super young for the most part. Getting Austin Jones back is huge for experience and leadership. But Marshawn Lawrence can also help with that as well, just being a guy who has made starts at the college level, made starts in SEC. He knows you know, what it takes. And they'll have two incoming freshmen who will be in early rollies but still young. Relique Brown, who is still super young as well, only going to be in his sophomore season. Darren Barlow is older but hasn't played a ton. But between Marshawn Lawrence and Austin Jones, you have some veteran guys you can kind of lean on and maybe wean the younger guys in as well. So just giving it a B-plus off the top. I think it's interesting because you could split this into the addition and the grade of the addition, and then what does the room look like now and sort of the grade of that position. So I think the addition, I agree with you, B+. I think Marshawn Lloyd, good player, physical running back. Uh, You get to add him on top of Austin Jones, and you Mm -hmm. have to look at this as almost like you're getting Austin Jones back as being an addition as well because I think – Again, coming out of the end of the season where he takes over for Travis Dye and having the run games that he had, you're going, okay, he's he's probably going to go to NFL draft. I think that was his mindset coming to USC to be one and done. And so if he continues to have these 100-plus, 120-yard rushing games, I think you know against these next two opponents he's going to see, that's definitely uh, worthy of potentially going to the NFL. So they get him back. They get a guy back that I think um, you know clearly – uh, he brings a lot of different dimensions to the run game, um, to the offense in general, because, A, he's very good receiver. He's the best receiver probably on the roster as, as a wide receiver. I mean, I think there would be debate there with Raleigh, uh Brown, but I think Austin Jones is definitely a very, very good uh, uh, receiver, uh, a good pass blocker, not as good as Travis Dye, but I think that's the one area where he can improve. I think that's where he really has to improve the most. Um, but uh, a very good running back, good vision, and um, you know has a little bit of lean to him. He's not the biggest guy in the world, but he actually is a pretty physical runner and sort of subtly a, a, a physical runner. He doesn't really look it uh, off the hoof, and, and he doesn't stylistically sort of run like a power runner, but he's a guy that on third and two, he's going to lean, he's going to get four yards. He, he always seems to get a little extra yards, and I think you really like that. And uh, you admire that about a running back that can um, just, you know, get that extra yard or two after contact, after basically being tackled. So I think, you know, it's like the addition of bringing back Jones and getting Lloyd. Um, I think, you know, Lloyd's had some injury issues in the past, so it's good that he's a part of a, a, a bigger rotation. I think that's good for him. Not the receiver that Austin Jones is, you know, he's not really mm-hmm. that natural of a receiver, but he can catch the ball out of the backfield. He has been used uh, in that way at South Carolina. Um, so yeah, a, a good back, not, you know, terribly explosive. He, he's certainly not like a Trevion Henderson, um, maybe even not um, quite to the level of um, the Cal running back, the freshman who was from Norco and his name is blinking on his name for some reason, who we thought might be in the transfer portal. Um, he ends up being Jade not uh, Jade not. Yeah. Uh, a, uh, a freshman all American level player, uh, quite not that, you know, that, that big a name at the running back position. But again, I think you need that more if you're losing Austin Jones, you know, where you have 
a guy that might be you have to break up uh, what what Travis Dye and Austin Jones were doing for the offense. Instead, now you're just basically trying to replace what Travis Dye did for the offense. And you're continuing to see some development from Malik Brown. And you're continuing to bring in good players out of the high school ranks um, like uh, Quentin Joyner and Amirian Peterson. So I think as the room is graded in terms of the addition to everybody you already have, I think you get, you're going to give the NNA to uh, the running back position as it stands right now. I think you have improved depth with the kids that you're bringing in out of high school. You bring back Austin Jones and you have the addition of Lloyd. I think that's a solid A for the running back room right now. Yeah, I would agree with in terms of looking at the room. Very, very highly uh, deep, talented, youth, experience, A, A, A all around for that, that running back room, be able to bolster it with the addition of Lloyd. Let's go to wide receiver just because we're sticking with single addition positions right now with Dorian Singer, the Arizona second team all Pac-12 wide receiver, led the Pac-12 in receiving yards last season. I would give this one, Gerard, an A. You know, Dorian Singer is six foot one, 190 pounds, a very, very good player. He absolutely torched USC in their meeting in Tucson. And Lincoln Riley looked at him and be like, yeah, if that comes available, I think I want that. And they were able to grab him. And we knew they were never going to have an issue recruiting any wide receiver out of the portal or at the high school level. And they got some guys coming in that are really, really good. But Dorian Singer right now could be – your replacement for Jordan Addison in terms of being your number one guy. Is Mario Williams going to compete for the B number one guy? Sure is. Do you think Brendan Rice could be competing for the number one guy? Sure is, especially after that Cotton Bowl. But I think Dorian Singer will be the favorite to go in there to be the number one weapon for Caleb Williams once they get that chemistry down, just because of what he did last season and his experience and his talent level. And so for that, I'm giving it an A pickup. Didn't really need a wide receiver, but to get a really, really good one like Dorian Singer, that's an A for me. This one's tough because I do look at Singer and I do wonder, can you use him like Jordan Addison? Because I don't think he's a level athlete like Jordan Addison. He's a very good receiver, but he's a good receiver in sort of intangible ways or sort of a as to how he's able to make some great catches, just strong hands, great ball skills, great vision, great body control, but not necessarily super fast, not necessarily super quick. He's not going to blow you away, but he's a good receiver. He's a good receiver, right? So I I feel like it's an A minus. It's it's an A because, as you said, I think room-wise you have to look at the, the 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 improvement that you're going to have athletically in numbers with getting Makai Lemon and Zach Branch. And I uh, we've talked about that ad nauseum in terms of the wrinkle that they could offer in terms of behind the line of scrimmage and some of the things in the screen game that I think they are better at doing than even Jordan Addison was. Jordan Addison was more of a downfield threat. Um, he, was, he was a very strong receiver for his size, ran really good routes, uh, very smooth. Um, and he had some better top-end speed than I think I I, I, I thought he had uh, when he was at Pitt and was watching film of him. I think he was sort of a little more of a tweener between Robert Woods and Marquise Lee, whereas I thought maybe he was a little more Robert Woods-ish. I think you know he probably had as much athleticism as Marquise Lee. So um, not a big player, but a guy that definitely was a little more of a downfield threat, which is going to be the question mark for this offense 
can they continue to push the lid off of defenses and, and really make them fear the deep ball, you know, without Jordan Addison there. And again, probably where Zach Branch and maybe Makai Lemon come in to, to the picture, um, you know, maybe to some extent Mario Williams. We didn't see him used a whole lot deep uh, last season, but that's somewhere where he could be maybe used a little more. Um, so we'll see how that supplements a guy like Dorian Singer and allows him to work underneath more and to be that possession receiver. Not a big guy either, uh, but again, has this sort of je ne sais quoi, sort of this intangible ability to be able to catch the ball and be very consistent catching the ball, especially in the red zone uh, where you're going to lose some players. Now, room-wise, I kind of think that it's it's sort of that B plus A minus sort of border. Like I can see where you can argue either way because you do lose CJ Williams, you do lose Kyle Ford, and you lose Gary Bryant. And that's I mean that's a five star and two high four stars. That's a lot of talent that's leaving. You know, so you're you're like, okay, what are we gaining? Well, we're gaining two guys that are five stars. Okay. And then you potentially have Jacoby Lane mm-hmm. still coming to USC, who's a four star. And then you get Dorian Singer. So in that regard, I think you argue more towards you know, it's an A minus, but where you lose Jordan Addison, you lose that potential deep threat that is a guy that Caleb trusts. You know, there's a little more probably wiggle room there where you could say, okay, you know, is that going to hurt the offense? Is it going to be harder for them to be able to do what they do normally uh, with the screens and, and other things that they do if they don't have that threat to be able to get deep? It's just going to be, you know, what are the freshmen going to be able to do? initially early on you know how much is that branch going to be able to use use deep is he more of an underneath guy for them because they want to use his yak yards I think Makai sort of stands out in that group as being the guy that you know if you want to run a skinny post of the wide receivers that they have uh on the roster he's probably the most dynamic of that group I mean you lose Gary Bryant so you really you know you've got Mike Jackson who's you know, been a good playmaker for him. And and like I said, Mario Williams is, is coming back and he's got some speed, but I think he's quicker than he is fast. Brennan Rice is the only really big receiver that they have. Um, John Jackson's there. We haven't seen a whole lot from him. We know that, you know, ter- in terms of his body and what have you, he's kind of more of a Dorian Singer, a Dorian Singer type of player. Um, Kyron Hudson Ware is, is a physical receiver, but a, a guy that's more of an underneath guy, not necessarily a straight on deep threat, you know? So I, I think Makai Lemon is really the guy that if you're running skinny pros, you're running streaks, they're just trying to keep the defense honest and keep the safeties out of the box. That's the guy that they're going to have to have. Um, but we'll see. You know, maybe Dorian Singer is like inexplicably able to, to get downfield and make some big plays downfield, kind of like he did against USC. I mean, he made some plays downfield against USC, and you're kind of wondering, like, how? Like, why is this guy getting downfield? You watch him, he's just not really fast. He's not a like if he was a clock fast guy, I'd be shocked. He just doesn't look super fast on film, but it's sometimes, you know, there's those guys. I know there's a, there's a, there's a dude in the NBA right now who I, I don't watch any NBA anymore. I stopped watching NBA kind of like post, uh, you know, the bulls run and they broke that team up and the NBA started putting in a bunch of high school players, couldn't pass the ball, couldn't play defense and couldn't shoot. And so I stopped watching the NBA. I'm not on it, but I know there's a dude from Eastern Europe now and you watch a little bit of NBA, Chris, do you know who I'm talking about that is the slowest, most unathletic-looking guy but is, like, killing the league right now? All I can say is it's not John Morant. But other than that, I do not know who you're referring to. 
Okay. Well, those who watch the NBA probably know who I'm talking about, but there's sort of a Larry Bird factor uh, to his game. And um, Jokic? Jokic. I think that's, yeah. I think that's okay. who I'm talking about. Um, and, um, you know, I was just, you know, sort of watching some stuff about various players and going back and watching some old film of like the old, uh, the, the, the old Celtics and the old Bulls teams. And just, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, it's something dynamic about those teams and, and how they interacted, you know, it's like, everybody thinks, Oh, Michael Jordan, that's why the Bulls were so great. Well, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, great player of all time, but there's a dynamic between Jordan playing against the Pistons and playing against the Celtics. I mean, he went for 63 against the Celtics in one of his first playoff games. And and Larry Bird was kind of talking about that game and how they all realized, okay, this is going to be the next guy, but there's always going to be a next guy. There's always going to be that athletic superstar type player, but taking that Michael Jordan and then making him a championship level, Michael Jordan, where he can play with Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright, Jim Paxton, and, and all those players that that sort of were around him to actually make the team better, to where they could get over that hump and beat the Pistons and then go on that crazy run. And for the guy to retire, go play baseball, and then come back as a, as a completely different player and change his game with the post-up fadeaway and how the triangle offense worked around that. Like, all those dynamics are interesting regardless of what sport you're looking at. You're, you're looking at those things of, of – how athletes interact and, and how leadership plays such a big part and chemistry plays a big part in all of this. And so, you know, I'm watching these videos on, on like older basketball teams and, you know, the old Larry Bird that, you know, people were just like, Larry Bird was the biggest trash talker and the most just, 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 he was an assassin out there. And Larry Bird was a little bit before my time. Like I didn't watch a ton of NBA. I was pretty young to watch like, I kind of came in like where the magic era was where showtime and the Lakers were really good. And they kind of started to actually beat the Celtics, but there was still that rivalry there. Well, bird, you know, he had the back injury and what have you. So he was kind of at the, the, the back end of his career when I started watching him. So I was watching some of the older films and, you know, so many guys that were like elite players, just talking about how ridiculous Larry bird was, how you go out there and just trash talk. You tell you exactly what he was going to do at the end of the game and how he was going to hit the game-winning shot, and then go out and do it, and just ridiculous, and and how he was, you know, closer to seven foot than people realized, and all these different things to hear about people, and there was those comparisons made to this kid that's coming into the, the league now, and how athletically you look at him at face value, and you just go, this dude ain't a guy, like, he doesn't have that quick twitch, he doesn't, but he's just inexplicably, he has those intangibles, the awareness, the instincts, the ability to just to just be uh, almost unstoppable right now. He's just killing the league right now. So that was where that uh, that reference came in with Dorian Singer. Gerard, I hear go an NBA hoop talk. I did not have that on my bingo list for this episode. Gerard, I wish so. I could. I mean, I I'm I'm sitting here making an example of somebody who I don't even know their name. So that, <laughs> that's probably not the best. But I wasn't really thinking I was going to go into NBA hoop talk on this podcast either. And here we go. That's where you found yourself. Now, the final piece of the offense transfer, that is offensive line. Now, Gerard, I do want to warn you, warn you at the top of the show, we talked a lot about this, so we don't need to go back into super detail about the three guys that they picked up, Michael Tarquin, Ethan Wright, Jared Kingston. But before the season or before the window opened, we were looking at around two to four. And if you want to count kind of like Justin Dietrich getting him back, maybe three and a half with the guys that they're returning and bringing in, for these veterans. So for me, just looking at it, 
it's an A plus for me. I mean, just think about where USC started this this window, losing out on Dylan Wade, the number two transfer offensive tackle to Auburn in a head to head battle, and that was a tough loss. But props to them; they came back, built up with Michael Tarquin, got him. Jared Kingston, they beat out Ohio State. Ohio State wanted him badly, but he's going to be a Trojan. And then to to top it all off, off the uh, the window with Ethan White to sure up that left side. I got to give it an A plus, you know, just for for these three guys, and it shows the 180 from USC trying to recruit the portal last offseason with having to recruit off faith. You know, you got Bobby Haskins, but now being able to recruit off results from last season and to be able to say, hey, come block for a Heisman winner, you know, come block for Caleb Williams. It shows the 180 of the recruitment that USC has had when recruiting offensive linemen out of the portal. So for me, it's got to be an A plus. Yeah, I give it an A. Uh, I think it's uh, definitely an A room. Uh, I don't know if I'd go on the plus side. That's with fair. It. That's fair. Because uh, we talked two to four. I didn't think Jesus was going to leave. I, I think it was yeah. two to four, even with him coming back. But knowing, you know, you still got to get that left tackle. You know, you still have um, some unproven players there. You know, we'll see what Mason Murphy does. And I'm still of the opinion, I'd love to see Mason Murphy maybe kick down and, and even try to compete. Um, at that right tackle spot. Uh, but, you know, Monheim has been very good inside as well. And uh, certainly you have Court and Ford there. So I think, you know, it's good that we're talking about some competition, you know, and, and I know with Ethan White at left guard, everybody's like, hey, second team all SEC, boom, plug him in. If he's not coming in during the spring, I think it's going to be a little more interesting and there's maybe a little more like, okay, he's going to get in there. Yeah, maybe a little more rotation. And listen, the fact of the matter is that you're going to have to have rotation during the season. Somebody's going to get hurt. You know, there's going to be bangs and bruises. You know, uh, Andrew Voorhees didn't play the whole year. Um, you know, Bobby Haskins was out quite a bit uh, last year. I, I think, you know, that's bound to happen to some extent. You, you knock on wood and hope it doesn't happen a whole lot. But uh, the versatility is going to have to be shown from this group. And you're going to have to have, you know, the good thing about Mason Murphy is he's played a bunch of different positions. Right. So that's you know, you can move him around quite a bit and see where, you know, he ends up fitting in best. Uh, whereas, like I said, Ethan White, I, I mean, left guard is is where he's, you know, sort of made his name. And I think with his size, that's probably where you want to put him. Potentially, I mean, maybe he could play a little right guard, but we haven't seen that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's an A. I think there's potential that you could bring in another player there. I think it's going to be dependent on what mm-hmm. happens after spring ball. And if you lose anybody that's, uh, you know, a contributor, uh, but you have to look at the freshman class that's coming in as well. And, you know, with um, Eliza Page, a big 6'7", you know, 305-pound uh, offensive lineman. Uh, you got Alani Noah, who's 6'4", 320, 330-ish. And Amos Talalele, who's 6'5", 330. And, and these are big boys. And with Talalele, he's going to take time for sure. He's a, a bit more of a project, uh, played at a very small level. Um, but I think a, a guy that has a lot of potential when you look at his athleticism and how he moves at that size, uh, Alani Noah coming from Grant, where it's, you know, just a really physical high school football team and, and, and really good run games uh, with Grant. I think you look at him and he's a guy that um, I wouldn't be surprised comes in and, and is, is just a, a street fighter, you know, that really helps kind of, again, evolve the culture of the offensive line and the physicality when you kind of insert guys like that into the rotation. Um, and, uh, I think with Paige, you know, he could kind of play either right side, maybe a little left side, but I think right side is really kind of where, uh, his future lies. Um, I don't know about putting 
you know, you talked about uh, the, the kind of moving guys from outside in, and that tends to be what you do as an offensive line coach. You know, it's almost always and very, very rarely. I mean, I talked about this with Devin Brooks. We kind of had a laugh about Elijah Vera Tucker um, and, and, and how difficult it is moving from the inside to outside. And it's just you never see it. What Elijah Vera Tucker did at USC was pretty remarkable. I mean, I know he played some tackle at Bishop O'Dowd High School, but Vera Tucker played guard for two straight seasons, I believe, at USC, and then they put him out at left tackle. And that's just crazy. It's crazy. So you you very rarely see that. You mostly see guys move from the outside inside, and, and that's a little easier on them. But I think what uh, you, you're talking about Andres Durek playing inside now at 6'7". Six, 6'7 seven. Six, is tall for an interior offensive lineman. It's tough to be that big because you have a lot of leverage issues. You're going against a lot of interior defensive tackles that are going to be I mean, your your nose guards and your nose tackles are going to be 6'2", 6'3", at the most. And then a lot of your you know regular defense tackles will be 6'4", maybe 6'5", your three techniques. But 6'7", um, you know, you can have some leverage issues. So uh, I don't know about him playing inside. That's, that's going to be tough. I know footwork-wise and athleticism, that's where the question marks were him coming out of high school. He was a little heavy-legged to be able to play, uh, certainly left tackle. Right tackle, you're like, well, maybe, you know, if you're more of a run team. So we'll have to see what happens with that with him. But I think with Paige being that tall, I think he athletically can play the edge. And I think right tackle is kind of like a perfect fit for him. So, yeah, I mean, I think just when you're looking at the room, uh, it's an A. It's much improved. Certainly, we put a little bit of that faith in Josh Henson because we've seen what he's done with Gino Quinones. Uh, We don't talk about him very much. But, I mean, for him to contribute last year and and play pretty well in spots was a big deal. And, And then to see... The, uh, the the improvement and development of Mason Murphy from his first game being in there where he was bad. He just he played bad, jumped off sides, had holding calls. Just was a it was it was not a good outing for him to see the progression from game to game where you know he played much better outside of the Utah game. On Utah game wasn't his best game, but it wasn't a good game for the offensive line in general. Justin Dedich didn't play well against Utah the second time either. That again is sort of where I go in, you know, to this argument of did Utah sort of kind of figure out some things about USC's offensive line? And when I say figure out, I don't mean they stopped USC's offense. Certainly Caleb Williams being hurt had a huge impact on that game, but I saw other things. I saw little details and little things in the offensive line and the movement and how Utah seemed to be very a step ahead of what was going on. Like, you know, they just were prepared for it better than I think they were prepared in the first game. And it wouldn't shock me if you saw more teams like that next season where they're able to make some plays on the run game or what, or, or various aspects of USC's offense just because they've had that much more time to prepare, to watch film. Defense coordinators are watching for tendencies. They're picking things up. And it's just one of those things. That's why I always say, you know, you got to have a defense to be able to win national championships. If you think you're going to just outscore teams, your, your offense – some point in time during the year, going to let you down. You're going to have to be able to stop some teams and, and play some defense. Okay, moving on to the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, there we go. Oh, no. Another <laughs> hour onto this podcast. Do you want to start with defensive back? Okay. <laughs> well, where do you want to start? What if I said no? <laughs> okay, well, you have the option to say no. Defensive back, you get Christian Morgan Wallace, who's, uh, I think, um, you know, a very physical defensive back, a guy that you know, kind of looks a little like the nickel corner that they've had, but, and, and been trying to recruit out of the high school ranks. Uh, but I think, you know, probably going to be more of a boundary corner 
Uh, the guy that, uh, you know, is he a replacement for Kai Blackman? Seems like a different type of player to me. Um, but uh, a good player nonetheless. So uh, that was a, a good get. You know, we'll see what they're able to do out of the high school ranks. You talked about Roger Pleasant's going to be another signing day uh, decision. And uh, we think USC probably leads right now for him. So, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, getting some experience as well as potentially getting uh, Pleasant. And maybe, you never know, even, you know, Warren Roberson there in the defensive backfield, and he would probably end up uh, playing, um, you know, nickel or cornerback. I, you know, they recruited him or are recruiting him to play boundary corner. So that's, you know, sort of what we're looking at uh, with uh, with that position. So um, grade-wise, uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is a B. It's a solid B, I give it. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, they had a lot of talent on at the cornerback position could be getting a little bit general is much more a lot younger talent there with like guys like Latrell McCutcheon and that are just sophomores a lot of redshirt freshmen and sophomores on that team you you I don't know for whatever reason I think people just think it's there's a lot more experience uh at defensive back than there is but there's really a lot of youth at defensive back yeah definitely a lot of youth so bringing a guy in who has been a starter since he stepped on campus as a true freshman is a big thing and having a, that veteran experience and that veteran uh, leadership for a guy, you know, kind of replacing the the older guy in the room and Makai Blackman, who, you know, developed really nicely into all Pac-12 guy in one year with Dante Williams, you know, not saying they're going to be playing their similar styles, but just to have that older voice in the room. I think that's what this this pickup is mostly about just getting an older guy in there, but a lot of talent in that room. And I, I think it's nice to have some older an older player as well with with plenty of starts to his name so yeah i'm in the same i'd probably give it a b plus moving on the linebacker can we move on the linebacker yeah you know you know <laughs> i like me a linebacker you have the option of saying no so at linebacker we were looking at uh them not picking up maybe a linebacker to maybe getting one so it was kind of like zero one sort of depends you know we weren't sure who was going to leave and Raylan Goldforth leaves. Okay, that's a guy who was starting um, experience at USC and, and was semi-productive at USC. Now, did not play well in certain areas. I mean, certainly in the red zone when Eric Gentry goes down and they have to put Randall Goldforth in, it didn't look good. It was a plays there where he was just a step behind, and I don't know if that's you know defensively just didn't understand where he was supposed to be or what have you. He was a pretty instinctual player. I think John Bosco, a, a pretty decent player, his brother was a safety at UCLA. But he definitely there were some big plays and some things that happened, and you saw, you know, number ten trailing on some of those plays. And so I think Mason Cobb, that's an A. That's that's getting a guy yeah. that uh, very productive, um, certainly can compete for a starting job at Mike linebacker, and could potentially be a will linebacker. Like I said, having you know potentially Tackett Curtis there as a true freshman playing Mike with Mason Cobb at will, and then being able to bring in uh, Eric Gentry or Eric Gentry playing Will and Sam, whatever that comes to be, I think that's a, a great addition. I mean, you do lose three linebackers out of that room. Julian Simons also uh, leaving a guy that, you know, physically looked like he had some potential and we were kind of excited about. We never really got to see anything from him. And then uh, Taylor Katoa also leaving, who went on a mission and, and was coming off an ACL and never played either. So I think, yeah, M- Mason Cobb interjecting him to that lineup, I think is great. Um, it's, it's changed a little bit. Certainly we would say they needed to get a linebacker out of the portal mm-hmm. with those three guys leaving. 
I mean, you could argue, eh, maybe, maybe there's another guy that's, that's a really big time player. I mean, I think with transfers in general, if there's going to be a marquee guy that is coming in that you know is a first, for sure, first round pick, and you can interject him into the lineup, you, you go get him. I mean, it's basically like Jordan Addison. I mean, did USC need Jordan Addison last year? They, did they really need him with the receivers that they had? No, they didn't. They didn't need him. But he's a former Bolitnikoff winner. <laughs> and they brought him in, and he played really well. So, you know, it's one of those things. That it's like, okay, you know, if you can bring in a guy at that level, even at a position where you don't necessarily need him, yeah, you go grab that player. So, yeah, that player pops up as, as middle linebacker, inside linebacker. Um, I'm sure USC would be interested. Uh, but, yeah, I think right now that's still getting Mason Cobb, a guy that's, you know, an impact player. And I think, um, you know, a different kind of linebacker than they've had. I mean, he's certainly quicker. Uh, he's a little smaller, uh, but a guy that uh, will be very good in the pass game as well. And he's a three-down linebacker. And, and I think that's probably would have been the biggest issue with Shane Lee. The fact that Shane Lee wasn't playing Mike linebacker still was like, uh, you know, I mean, it's like that's where he should be playing. Um, and, and you're putting Eric Gentry there tells me that, you know, you're you're fearing what Shane Lee looks like at, at certain uh, circumstances, down in distances. You just you, you can't trust that, you know, so you that's where you have to put Eric Gentry at my linebacker. But I think with Tackett Curtis coming in, Mason Cobb, uh, I definitely am of the opinion that, you know, now you kind of can freelance Eric Gentry a little more and um, you probably shouldn't be playing Mike linebacker next year. Yeah, I'm with you in terms of the Mason Cobb grade being a home run hit. That's a that's a really great pickup and it really upgrades not replaces upgrades that linebacker room, which, you know, watching at times last year definitely needed more talent, more athleticism, more explosiveness. And they dealt with injuries last year and they were relying on, you know, players that, you know, at times were not getting it done for a lot of part of the season. So bringing Mason Cobb in, in a guy who was very productive at the Big 12 level, you know, Lincoln Riley and that staff saw him up close and personal when they were at Oklahoma. So they know what they're getting played out of position at times, but had the instincts to kind of make up for that and, you know, still make the play, even though he wasn't where he needed to be. And that's something that I think is going to really make a difference in that room for next season, those instincts to at, at the linebacker position and excited to see what that looks like with attack of Curtis and with, you know, Eric Gentry making another step forward, going to his junior year and maybe tacking on some, tacking on some more weight. So I think with Mason Cobb, you got a very, good-looking linebacker room now with the, the freshman you brought in. So, yeah, I think it's A-plus – or not, excuse me, it's an A for that pickup. Now, I think we can move on to the edge players, Gerard. Yeah, that would be differentiating between the inside linebackers and the edge-type players, I think. I think this is an A-plus, and we have to sort of look at the blurred line position-wise when you talk about Anthony Lucas. That's – where you go, okay, is he going to be an inside guy? Is this, are we taking away from the interior and putting on edge? Or are we looking at a guy that kind of jumps around both and, and that sort of affects the grade? But I think at face value, if you're looking at Jamil Muhammad and you're looking at Anthony Lucas and Jake Sullivan, I think that's an A-plus in terms of replacing uh, what you lost and then maybe improving a tad. And I think the improvement actually comes from Muhammad. I think with Lucas, obviously you're arguing – Hey, look, it, it's another situation where you have Ethan White coming in for Andrew Voorhees, right? An All-American. So you've got a really good player that's shown some really good potential, who is a second-team All-Conference player. And, you know, can he really replace a two-time All-American? Well, can, Jim, uh, can Anthony Lucas really replace initially 
the loss of Tuli Tui Polotu? Maybe not initially, but in terms of the potential being there where he could be that player, I think that's definitely a possibility. And so um, if we're looking at Tuli Tui Polotu as a guy that played outside and inside, and we say, okay, he, he started out as an edge and then kind of you know bulked up and moved inside, and we look at that uh, same trajectory for Anthony Lucas, I think you put him on edge to begin with, and he's part of a group that's an A group. Mohammed sort of puts them over because that's sort of a speed rusher, linebacker, very highly skilled, weak side pass rusher that USC really didn't have on the roster last year. You know, you're looking at Solomon Bird, you're hoping Corey Foreman kind of becomes that guy, but Corey Foreman is 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 already maybe potentially a guy that's more, more of a Nick Figueroa at 265-270. So you're looking at the smaller 6'2", 245-pound uh, type of guy that, that played quarterback in high school, right? So, you know, 44 tackles, one and a half sacks, five tackles for losses last year. Not amazing stats, but when you watch him play, I mean, he's got a little bit of twitch, explosiveness, and quickness that I just don't think you've had at that weak side position. I mean, you could argue that's a guy that could actually probably move back some and play off the line of scrimmage more than maybe some of these other players. And we know USC has done that a lot with their defensive ends. They've put them in zone coverage uh, with zone blitzes uh, quite a bit last year. I think that happened more when Eric Gentry went down, and that was sort of some of their answer, you know, including moving Tuli Toy Pelotu kind of off the line of scrimmage and putting him in as an inside linebacker and you know, a little bit of a shell game. And we've talked about how that's probably not the best thing to do, uh, you know, regularly as much as they did it last year. I think, you know, they could curtail uh, some of those reps with uh, putting, um, you know, Anthony Lucas off the line of scrimmage, but nevertheless uh, something that they use is a wrinkle. And we know that the defensive line, they like to have a lot of movement and a lot of athleticism there. So, you know, Jack Sullivan is kind of like the stalwart, Five technique defensive lineman, a guy that I think you really just want to put your hand on the ground. You don't want him really doing too many cute things. Um, but Anthony Lucas, I think athletically you can do a little more with. And Jamil Mohamed, I think you can do a lot with. I think he's a linebacker that you could put at the line of scrimmage. And certainly on passing downs and, and you know third and long, or you're playing against teams that really want to spread it quick and they want to have like a pass possession game where they get the ball out quickly He's a guy that's quick enough that he can beat, you know, a, an offensive lineman in space in a passing situation and, uh, and get to the quarterback and track the quarterback really well uh, against those teams that might have a mobile quarterback. So, yeah, I like Jamil Mohammed a lot. I think he's very underrated. I think he should be a four star for 24-7 sports. I think they missed the, the ball on that one. That that one, I think that's a guy that, um, you know, certainly uh, is a little better than um, he's rated. Yeah, you hit on, you know, most of the parts for the for this group of of guys. I Anthony Lucas being obviously the gem of this uh transfer class for most USC fans just seeing, oh, five-star defensive lineman and we we will see where he ends up really playing, but it seems like most of the time that will kind of be on the edge, but you hope as Ju- uh, Gerard has uh alluded to earlier, he embraces his inner bubba and maybe we can see him play interior for this defensive line moving forward. Jack Sullivan, very solid pickup, very good production at Purdue. You know, could be a guy that ends up, ends up being a starter. Would not be surprised by that. And Jamil Muhammad, the first transfer pickup, you know, a lot of people are like, hmm, Georgia State, what's that going to look like? But quickly becoming, you know, a guy, I know you obviously just mentioned how big you are on him, but becoming a guy I'm also excited to see with that athleticism, being a former quarterback and, just hearing the way Lincoln Riley talked about him being a guy that just makes plays, gets to the quarterback, gets in the backfield, and that's something they were sh- uh, lacking 
consistently with this defense last season. So I'm excited to see what Muhammad brings for this defense and could be a real big X factor for that front. Now let's shift into the final position, which is defensive tackle, which for right now is just Keon bars, the former Arizona Wildcats starter six foot three, around 300 pounds. Gerard, I'm leaning towards maybe B minus C plus just strictly because I think they needed, they need more defensive tackles. They need at least two more guys. I agree. I see C+. Plus. I, I think, you know, good player. Uh, you're losing Kobe Pepe and you're losing Brandon Peely. Brandon Peely was a good player, talented player. I think injuries really kind of hurt him in, in how he was able to make an impact um, just in his career at USC. You know, last year he, he played off and on and, and it seemed like he showed some flashes but just didn't see the field all that much and obviously was coming off an injury and then, you know, had an injury previous year and had injuries kind of his whole career at USC, but was a, was a very good player and a lot of physical talent for a guy that big, but you're, you're replacing those two. And I kind of feel like, you know, that's where Keon bars is, right. He's kind of a replacement uh, for, for one of those guys kind of not both those guys, but you do sort of need those bodies still. Um, and that's again, where you can argue, well, it should be more like a B because you get Anthony Lucas and like Tui Tui Pelotu uh, could potentially be an impact player on the interior. Where, where do they need it? They need talent on the interior and they need more physicality uh, from that athletic uh, build of a player. You have to have some guys, three technique, that can get through that A-gap and, and make a play, you know, be disruptive. And they just didn't have enough of that. They've got like some serviceable type players. Uh, that, um, you know, are, are contributing. And like I've said before, I think played above their heads to some extent. Uh, you know, Stanley Tahu mm-hmm. and Tyrone Talane, I think both played well. Dijon Benton was the talk of camp. And then we saw him early in the year, and then he hurt his hand, and then we kind of didn't see him the rest of the year. Uh, they also lose Colin Mobley, who's probably going to be more of an interior guy. He was like up to 290 pounds. So they actually lose three interior guys, and they've only got one now. Uh, plus Tuli Pelotu, who did play on the interior to some extent. I'm a big fan of Earl Barquet. I'm going to go down on the Earl Barquet ship and say that, uh, you know, I I look back on this film at TCU, and I see things that he did when he got his five reps last season at USC, and I saw a guy that was disruptive. I saw a guy make some flash plays at USC, and I think could be a guy that actually contributes quite a bit for this defense, you know, maybe Sean Newman just doesn't agree. I don't know how that goes with him not maybe practicing. I know the practice thing has, you know, been a big deal. And, and that's been a, a question with Rajon Davis, but Earl Barquette is a guy that I, I still uh, kind of hold that hope for that could make an impact. I would have pegged him making more of an impact than Tyrone Tedelele. Um, So we'll see how that goes. That could be something that we need to watch for and could impact their recruiting going forward because we know what happened with Johnny Nansen. And I was getting a lot of talk from high school coaches and seven on coaches and things that, oh, you know, they only play Polynesian players. Sean was going to have to combat that same thing if uh, they're just playing a bunch of Polynesian guys up front and not necessarily giving everybody a fair shot, at least in the eyes of the high school coaches and the, the, the perception from the outside in. And that always does play an impact uh, when you're recruiting on the recruiting trail. You're going to have to battle against that kind of stuff. So, you know, we'll see what, they, what happens. But I think they definitely they definitely need – Still another guy to come in uh, high school ranks was kind of underwhelming in terms of getting like an immediate impact player uh, on the defensive line. Um, they've got some guys like Sam Green and Elijah Hughes who could end up being, you know, good players for them. 
down the line, but they're, you know, 250, 260 pound type players uh, that are going to have to put on some weight and you're going to have to project them. And they're not big. They're not very big. They don't have, you know, super long arms and, and, and are, you know, six, five and are the prototypical type of three techniques that you think about, you know, the Leonard Williams types of players, the Sean Cody types of players. So that's what USC absolutely needs. And that's what they don't have. And they haven't gotten the portal yet. Uh, Kenyon Bars was a, a good player. Like I said, you're sort of, you know, looking at him as a kind of Brandon Peely slash Kobe Pepe, but um, they're going to need uh, more players. Uh, they might just may even need just a body here. You know, it might be a guy that's not super productive. I, I think you got to stay away from guys that are injured. <laughs> you know, that's that's I've always said that about the transfer portal. Um, and, uh, you know, the guys that are those impact players are just few and far between and they're hard to get. You know, they went after Brandon Fisk, uh, who ended up committing uh, to Florida State. You know, he was a guy that was, uh, you know, sort of hard, high on their list um, as, a, as a, a defensive tackle. And uh, most of the scholarship offers uh, that they had out, you know, have been to defensive linemen and defensive tackles. I mean, um, counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve guys at this point who are defensive linemen. Now, in terms of, you know, strictly defensive tackle types, guys that are going to be in the interiors, Devon Sears Jr., uh, they offered a scholarship to out of Texas State, went to Oklahoma. He's a four-star. I don't know how he's a four-star and a guy like Jamil Muhammad is a three-star because Devon Sears had 15 tackles, one sack, 3.5 tackles for losses in 2022. He didn't play the year before. So he's straight out of junior college. I don't know where, you know, that 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 uh, projection comes that, you know, he's a four-star and a guy like Jamil Muhammad is only a three-star, but, you know, I'm not the one ranking guys. Jordan Birch is, is more of an outside guy but has – that sort of potential defensive tackle body. USC offered him, but he was going to Oregon right out of South Carolina. We know how that went down. Uh, Caleb Williams, another guy with absolutely no production whatsoever. Um, I think he was a four-star coming out of high school, and he went to Louisville. He did absolutely nothing. He had two tackles last year, one sack, one tackle for loss, and didn't really do anything year before, but committed to Florida, six, seven, 300 pounds. So I guess you're projecting him, you know, to maybe be a guy just based on his physical presence. Uh, we talked about Brandon Fisk. He was definitely productive coming out of high school. Uh, to uh, to uh, to Mince Adele, uh, already forgot how to say his first name, um, came and went, six tackles last year. He got hurt, uh, but was a guy that Texas A&M really liked um, and they wanted to keep and, and was a guy that we thought could potentially be an impact player for USC, ended up at Michigan State. Anthony Goodlow, um, also uh, at, at Tulsa, like uh, Dylan Wade, the offensive tackle. Uh, you know, Goodlow's had some production, 44 tackles, two sacks, and uh, eight tackles for losses committed to Oklahoma State. So uh, right now, the only other scholarship offer that USC has out to a transfer on the defensive side of the ball, a guy that would be projected probably to play defensive tackle, although he's only 6'6", 266 pounds, not the biggest guy in the world in terms of weight, uh, is Julius uh, Welshoff, uh, the big uh, German out of Michigan who had six tackles last year, no sacks, no tackles for losses, only had 23 tackles and .5 sacks in four seasons at Michigan. So that's a body. That's a guy that you bring it in. You're hopefully, you know, doesn't have any lingering health issues and comes in and just a body for you. You'd like him to be, you know, two, 286 instead of 266. Um, but that's, you know, kind of where USC is at in terms of defensive linemen. But that's been the position where they've clearly often offered more players uh, than, than any other position uh, in the transfer portal. And we know why, you know, we saw how they played last season. So, uh, stands to reason. But yeah, USC's, you know, Jamil Muhammad is a three-star and, you know, you look at a guy like J J uh, Josiah Stewart, who's got a four-star at a coastal, coastal Carolina, um, 
you know, their, their stats are, are kind of, you know, very similar, you know, 36 tackles for Josiah Stewart, uh, three and a half sacks, as opposed to um, Jimmy Muhammad only have one and a half sacks, uh, but, you know, kind of similar numbers. And, you know, I, I liked uh, Jamil Muhammad's athleticism on film much more. I, I like the speed, his quickness. And I talked specifically about awareness and pass rushing. I think Josiah Stewart's sort of a kind of put your head down bull rush type of guy that loses himself sometimes in terms of uh, his uh, respect to his run gap assignment. And Jamil Muhammad wasn't that way. You know, he, he rushes with his eyes up. And um, I think he makes more plays in off the backfield because of that. Overall, I think defense did a really good job, but still need some of those bubbas on the interior. That's our main takeaway. But from just an overall standpoint, both offense and defense, USC did very, very well in this initial transfer portal window. And we'll see what's in store for them after spring. When that second window opens up, it should be fun. Probably won't be as many additions, but I still think USC is going to have some new transfers coming in after the spring and they make some moves there. So we'll see who enters there and we'll do another transfer Palooza part two opening after spring episode. So we'll be on tune for that. Now, Gerard, we have reached the part, the part of the show where we always end. That is listener questions. Again, if you want a question asked on this podcast, you can email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Make sure you put the composite two star recruits, Kristen Gerard, Menudo Boys, Menudo Men, Cilantro Gerard Boys, Gerard. 10K, Gerard and Hurricane and Gerard, whatever you want, just make sure it identifies us and it'll get into my inbox. People also DM me questions. That is a popular method to get a question onto the show. Gerard, I'm feeling generous today, so I my plan is to get through all of these questions but let's not do 30 minutes per question. We just have to make sure you're not talking in the first person when you say Gerard. You know, that, that, was, yeah. that was the joke there with Gerard, Gerard, because you referred to yourself as Gerard at the end of the last podcast. Yes, yes. If you did not listen to the top of this podcast for whatever reason and you did not get that joke, yes, <laughs> that, that is what it is. Uh, okay, Gerard, you ready to do some questions? Gerard is. Gerard is. Okay, this is kind of a long one, but let's get into it. Hey, Chris, hope you are doing well. Been enjoying the shows lately. Got a question for Gerard on the next composite two-star recruits relative to the offensive line depth, which is improving, and the defensive line depth, which is still in need of improvement. Name a Trojan currently projected to be an offensive lineman, 300 pounds plus, that you could turn into an interior defensive lineman if you absolutely had to. More of a fun hypothetical than a good idea in reality. Like, what would Alani look like on the other side of the ball if you could convince him to get in there and wreak havoc for the good of the team. That comes from Steven. Steven, my pick would be Amos Talalele. But, Gerard, let's hear what you have to say. You know when the defensive line is struggling, when you want to start turning <laughs> offensive linemen into defensive linemen, you usually want to do the opposite of that. You usually look on your defensive line and over-recruit the defensive line, and then maybe some of those guys – uh, can go over and play uh, offensive line or, or offensive interior line. We saw Gino Pete Carroll do that. Pete Carroll did that with a couple of players. Uh, Butch Lewis was a guy that, um, you know, played uh, defensive tackle out of Colorado. It's four-star defensive tackle, ended up playing offensive tackle for USC. I think he ended up playing right tackle, was a good player for USC. And Alex Parsons was another guy that uh, was originally a defensive lineman. Uh, remember him being at the Cali Florida Bowl. I was playing defensive line, and then uh, when he went to USC, ended up playing center. And so usually 
you know, you want um, that sort of athleticism to be, you know, just put on the pounds and play offensive line, but rather than vice versa. But we're, we're saying hypothetically, like, if you could, I'm going to make a bold prediction. Oh. And I and I and and I see, you know, Amos, Amos Telelele was a guy that legitimately was looked at from some schools as being a defensive lineman. But I do think most schools were talking about him playing defensive line when when they all along really wanted him to play offensive line. I think that was kind of how that went. It's like, hey, he wants to play defensive line. We'll tell him he's going to play defensive line. We'll bring him in. He'll spend you know a week at the uh, defensive line, and then we'll say, hey, you know, Amos, we think he could be in the offensive line, and you'll play better there. And then flipping him over. Well, so, Francis Maui Goa was the same way. He wanted to be a defensive lineman when he was like a freshman and sophomore, and then people were like, you're going to make a lot more as an offensive tackle. Every kid wants to be the next position over. Remember, like, it's the linebackers want to be safeties. The safeties want to be cornerbacks. Cornerbacks want to be wide receivers. Wide receivers want to be quarterbacks. <laughs> Everybody basically wants to matriculate to the more skilled position. It's, it's an ego thing. It's a, it's a thing I'm, you know, I, listen, you're 6'5", you know, 295 pounds, uh, and you can run. You know, forget trying to play linebacker or, or defensive end. Go play three technique and be a millionaire uh, as a three technique. You know, you, you just kind of have to embrace what your physical abilities allow you to do and where you're the most unique. You know, if you're a 6'3", 185-pound receiver and you're just not that fast or you don't have great hands and, you, and you're just not instinctually very good with the ball in the air, go be a cornerback because, you know, there's not a lot of 6'3", 185-pound cornerbacks. So, you know, obviously you have to have the feet and you have to have the quickness and what have you, but – you, you need to go where you're unique and you can be an asset. Now, with that said, who out of that group do I think can play defensive line? Well, Gino Quinones came uh, from um, the high school ranks at uh, St. Louis as a defensive lineman. He wasn't even ranked as an offensive lineman. He wasn't recruited, to my knowledge, as anybody as an offensive lineman. He was a defensive tackle. We saw him play at uh, one of the local um, – trying to remember what camp it was that we saw him play and he was on the defensive line. And so he, he's a guy that you could definitely put on the defensive line. Potentially. I think he's way too far gone at this point, uh, developing as an offensive lineman and the fact that he could play significant numbers next year. Uh, certainly if there's an injury, he'll be right there. You know, he'll be a guy that they're going to be putting a lot on the offensive line. So he's in that rotation to where I don't think you would want to put him on the defensive line. My bold move would be Mason Murphy in terms of like if you actually mm. wanted to put somebody in the offensive line or defensive line that had some athleticism. And, and I think he's probably the best athlete they have on the defensive line. Um, I don't think there's anybody that's got, you know, longer arms and the ability to actually maybe make some plays and be disruptive as an interior defensive lineman on that offensive line roster. You know, I, I don't know about Cooper Lovelace. I don't think he's fast enough. I don't think Jonah Monheim has the quickness. Um, I don't think Cortland Ford has the quickness. I think it would be Mason Murphy. It would be the guy that I would probably move. And I know, I, I, and, I, and anybody that's related to Mason Murphy or Mason himself hears me talking about him, they probably hate my guts because I'm like, I don't really want to put him at left tackle. I'm not sure about him at right tackle. I mean, I know he could play it, but I think his upside and the ceiling is the highest as a guard. I mean, and again, this is like just what we were talking about. It's like, where are you the most unique? Where can you be 
the best at. Like you could be a good, okay offensive tackle, or you could be like a serious contender to get drafted as an interior offensive lineman, right? So I think, you know, of that group of offensive linemen, I look and think who's the most athletic. I don't think it would be Alani Noah. And I actually don't think it would be Emos Tenelele. And certainly I'd be a little bit skeptical of Tenelele just initially because I think it's just going to take him a while, you know, because he, he played that small ball. And I think he's getting used to the speed and the physicality. If it's next season and I had to, so we're, we're looking at this as the, oh, my gosh, this is we have to. I would probably say Mason Murphy. I saw Mason Murphy play in a Trinity League game defensive line. They just like they were getting their butts beat, so they just threw him in at nose guard, and he wasn't that bad. He was actually moving people, uh, mostly for goal line stuff, but he wasn't that bad. So I, I like that prediction. And since or that prediction, pick, what, uh, sorry, sorry, pick selection, <laughs> not a prediction, we're hypothetical prediction. prediction. Hypothetical prediction. Sorry, don't 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 shoot me. Uh, next, since we were talking about defensive line, I have a question here from Paul in LA. Love the podcast, guys. Always a great way to knock out a three-hour drive. Question for Gerard for the layman: Can you explain the different types of defensive players slash positions? Three technique, five technique, etc. Thanks so much, Paul in LA. We like to call them filthy casuals, but layman is another good term <laughs> for that. But Gerard, please give me an abbreviated talk of this. Don't I know you can literally do 45 minutes on this, but give the man a breakdown. Uh, five technique, you're you're on the outside shoulder of the right tackle. Five technique tends to play on the strong side, and so the, you're you're playing the right tackle. And you're, it, it, the technique is just the, the shoulder or shade that you're on. So sometimes you just say shade, um, but most of the time you're talking about technique. And the five technique would be on the strong side. It would be in the outside shoulder of the right offensive tackle. Three technique is inside shoulder of the guard. And so you're playing the A-gap. And when we all also talk about one gap versus two gap, one gap would be your responsibility in the run game, first and foremost, is one gap in front of you. It's the, You're in the gap, and you're responsible for shooting that gap, attacking that gap, tackling the, anything that comes through that gap, whereas opposed to being a two-gap type of defense, and it's really more for the defensive line, somewhat for the run fits for the linebackers as well, but for the defensive line, you're actually usually playing over a player. So your technique would be like a four technique. So every shoulder and every gap on the offensive line Looking at it from a defensive line standpoint is a gap and a technique. So the technique, the gaps are, you know, ABC, right? You know, you, you know, your A gap is, is, is in the middle. It's between center and guard. B gap, it goes out to ABC. Well, the techniques are like from the outside in. One technique would be, you know, over the shoulder, right or left of the center. Zero technique would be head on for the center. So that's, it basically starts at the center, zero and then one on either side of his shoulder, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then five, right? And then it goes six and seven. You can even have a seven technique, which is not over anybody's shoulder. You're on the way outside of the tight end at that point. You're going to be playing weak side. Um, you would be way out. You know, there, there was even I, – I think they had the Eagles many years ago had like a nine technique where 
It was just kind of like you're playing like a gap off of the offensive tackle way outside, forcing the offensive tackle to kind of play you out wider, to give you more space, to be able to, to maneuver as a, as a pass rusher. So that's sort of the technique system. It's a basically just identifying where the defensive lineman is going to line up against the offensive lineman. And so your five technique, again, it's the shoulder of the right tackle, the outside shoulder. Uh, whereas you're going to play seven technique, you'd be on the outside, um, you know, away just that farther out of the left tackle. Um, and if you're playing uh, a three technique, it's basically you're in that A gap, but you're playing on the inside of uh, the uh, the guard shoulder. Or, let me see. Yeah, the guard shoulder. And, and the other thing is like, you know, when you're playing, um, even when you're playing a two gap system and you're head up on the offensive lineman and you have to actually defend both gaps. So you're head up against, let's say, the guard, or let's say, yeah, let's say the guard, okay? You're head up against the guard, and you're playing a four technique. There is even a four-eye technique, which is like four but inside, and it's, 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 I mean, it gets really sort of technical, and, you know, at that point, I don't know, like, the differences. I mean, to me, that's just, you're playing a two-gap, you know, and you're going to be head up against whatever offensive lineman you're going against. The biggest thing is you're going to have responsibility uh, for both those gaps. So you're taking on that offensive lineman and then you're, you're, you're basically being a body catcher of sorts because you're having to just get your arm out and just move to where you see the play going because you're responsible for both those gaps. That's why when I always say, I think when USC is recruiting, I think they have to have a one gap defense because those are the type of athletes that fit the one gap system where it's a Leonard Williams type, Sean Cody type, um, manual right, those type of guys that can just get through that one gap, one spot for responsibility. They don't have to, 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 to look and take on offensive linemen to the point where you're sort of, um, you know, just fighting with the offensive linemen and then trying to make your play. You can completely blow past the offensive linemen in a one gap defense. I mean, you, if it's a passing down, even if it's a running down, you're just quicker, man, you can make that swim move. Boom. You can end up right through that hole and you're disruptive. And I feel like, one gap defenses with the type of players USC can recruit and really the type of players that are on the West coast. It's not just recruit in general. It's the guys that you have a good chance at getting more often than not the West coast type of players, you know, it, that once in, you know, every kind of two, three years where you get a guy out here, that's a good looking defensive lineman, defensive tackle more often than not, he's going to be a one gap type of defender, 280 to 85 pound player, that you can get. Maybe he's a guy that is a former defensive, you know, and like Sean Cody and, and um, Sean was, I think Sean was like 250 ish, 260. If I recall coming out of high school, out of Los Altos. And then, you know, he put on that weight to be a guy that was a three technique, uh, one gap defensive tackle. And, and so that's usually what you're going to get on the West coast. So I think that's kind of the defense that you want to run. You want to revolve around those type of players. Whereas you're in the deep South and you've got, you know, some guy that's, you know, Terrence Cody instead of a Sean Cody, who's, you know, 6'5", 360 pounds, you put that guy right on top of your tide, uh, your uh, center at the zero technique, and he's just going to take your center, and he's going to take both gaps on the, either side of him, and he's just a freaking mountain of a human being. You're not going to find those guys in the West Coast very often. You know, they just don't have those players um, that, that you're regularly going to be recruiting cycle in cycle out and so I, I think that the two gap type of defenses are, are much harder to run 
on the West Coast. That's what Justin Wilcox runs at Cal. That's what he ran at USC. And he had four eyes, but it's still a two-gap, you know, straight-up defense that, um, you know, you have to have a certain type of player, deep, deep some linemen particularly, to run those type of defenses. Sorry, I had. I, sorry, I had, go, I had to go. I had to go. I had to go do. Minutes? I had to do my second job as a Lyft driver, and I just got back from uh, that uh, that run. I apologize. I and that and that was Gerard's answer with me telling him not to go long. Just just want to to put that out there. I thought that pause was to to make it longer. <laughs> no, I, I was just uh, anticipating a second pickup there, a second wind, if you will. But let's keep. Going with defensive line before because we have three questions about 2024 recruits. So let's keep it focused on the D line right now. This comes from Bill. First off, I want you guys to know I listen to your podcast regularly and very much enjoy. Thank you, Bill. Okay, so I'm concerned as many of us are with our defense, and I'm especially concerned with how our D line got ragdolled, all caps, by Utah and Tulane. Let's assume that Tyrone Tulane and Keon Bars are the starters. Parentheses, not sure if that is an accurate assumption. And we will need multiple layers of rotation to stay fresh and competitive, especially in a game with Utah, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, etc. Do we have the depth yet to have a competitive D-line at the upper end of competition? If not, what is the issue and who are the portal targets? We might get us there if it is one more, two more, or three more. Thank you, Bill. P.S. I thought this question would be on topic for this week. Well, I will keep it kind of short for you bill no they do not have the depth or talent at a at across the board on a rotation to be competitive competitive when you're talking about facing the georgias and the alabamas and the ohio states they have they can get some more guys to be at that level for you know the best teams in the pac-12 which they are a part of but to be with those sec teams no they are not there yet and that is not a one or two or three portal guy fix. That is a multiple multiple cycles of recruiting the defensive line well. That's, that is a foundation building. What all of those teams that I just mentioned are Alabama, Georgia, Ohio. They have multiple good cycles of bringing in defensive linemen all the time. And Gerard has mentioned this several times. Stacking classes, regardless of who you got in the last cl- cycle, you stack and you stack and you stack like heck. Those with those programs do so no usc does not have the competitive defensive line rotation to compete at with those level of teams now they can have a couple more portal guys to make them you know pac-12 championship level in the pac-12 they still need those guys but yeah they need more recruiting at the high school level to have that kind of rotation i agree you are certainly a player or two on the interior from having a defense that looks like the defenses that have done it before, the defenses that have been on national championship teams. We talked last week specifically about two stats that USC really has to improve on, and I think those type of personnel upgrades are are what are going to keep them from obtaining those stats. It's rush defense. Okay, I think that's a big one. I think that's one that, you know, not being in – the top 100 is, is kind of an issue. You want to be at least in the top 50. I think there was a, a stat floating around during the season that if you weren't in the top 30, um, you're more likely not going to make the college football playoff. And I think yards per play is another one. Just overall, you know, just those big yards per play where 
you're missing tackles up front, you know, you get gashed in the run game, or you're not pass rushing like you need to. You don't have consistent pass rush, and the offense is able to throw the ball downfield. You know, if you've got a good pass rush and you've got a guy in the interior, and listen, it's always quicker to get to the quarterback in a straight line than it is in a curve. So your guys on the outside are always kind of having to curve around. They got to make that play coming off the edge. You got a guy in the middle. You got a Walter Nolan. You got a guy that's a big time three technique, or or you do have that one shake guy that's actually a pass rush threat. I mean, he's coming. He's going right around his guy. He's going right to the quarterback, straight up the middle. Quarterback does not have time to step up in the pocket. He does not have good field vision. You're not going to have big plays in the passing game if you've got a defense that can do that. And our last three questions all deal with 2024 cycles. So, Gerard, I hope you can pull some of those names out of your head for right now. The first one comes from Terrence House the Bouse. Two stars. Kristen G-Mart, can you name five recruits from the 2024 cycle that you currently look at at where things stand today and feel good about USC's chances? Off the top of my head... And that's not me typing in the background the the offer list right now. But off the top of my head, I would say DeAndre Carter. I would say uh, Brandon Baker. Even though I feel like Oregon is still kind of the leader there, USC is very much in the mix for Mr. Brandon Baker. I would say Dakota Fields. Uh, I would throw him in there. I would throw Kingston via Amaasa. In there, and I need one more. Maybe Jason Mitchell. I can throw that one in there. You know, I think they've done a really good job with Marcellus Williams as well. They have the brother connection, even though I think he is sort of looking to go out of state. But I think they've made some headways with all of those guys, and more so DeAndre Carter. I would also say Jordan Lockhart as well. So are we talking about defense, or we're just talking about? No, I just anyone. I I named two offensive linemen. Well, that's what I was saying, but I wasn't sure if that that question. Usually, the questions are about you know what kind of defensive tackles are we getting. It's a transition, a segue from the question. Five um, prospects in the twenty twenty four class. Anyone you want? Um, yeah, huh? That's interesting. Well, I don't know. And there we'll end it there. I don't know because I don't know. I mean. A good a good shot at is like what does that mean? You know, does that mean that they're they're going to get a visit from them? They'll be on campus. I mean, Kingston Valumu Asa, I think, is a guy that they have a good shot at. But I think most would say Ohio State still leads mm-hmm. at this point. So, you know, is that uh, necessarily? I think they have. Uh, I think they have a good shot at Jordan Lockhart. I would say that, even though he's committed to Ole Miss, I think he's been down at USC enough. And he's uh, familiar with USC enough. I think that they have a good shot at him. Now, does that mean he is going to decommit, you know, tomorrow or this week? You know, I don't know what the expectation is of uh, having a good shot. But I I would say that they are certainly within his top three. Let's call that good shot. Let's say high interest, right? Okay. Okay. I think high interest is is another way of saying good shot. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know if there are really any defensive linemen that I would really say they have a good shot at or would say have high interest. T.A. Cunningham, I think... Again, this is just any prospect, Gerard. It doesn't have to be defensive lineman. Well, I'm trying to start somewhere, bro. Well, then, can I pair it with another question? Okay. This is from Keith W. With all the 2024 D-line offers coming out, does that mean we're not looking 
good for dudes already on our board like T.A. Cunningham, Aiden Breland, David Stone, Elijah Rushing, or Justin Scott? He has a second part to that question that is based on the team, but I'll just throw that question from Keith W. in there, which is kind of what you're talking about right now. We're going to kill two birds with one stone with those questions. So, yeah, I think defensive linemen, you know, top five, certainly. T.A. Cunningham is in there. Uh, I mean, I would put USC still in the top five for Justin Scott, even though he's probably going to commit to Notre Dame here. He actually uh, delayed his announcement. He is not committing at the end of this month. Uh, he is postponing that. Okay. And he did just get the Georgia offer. That's probably more so to do with the Georgia offering him. But more time is good for USC. Yes, it is. It is. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know. Probably should have just commit to Notre Dame and then go through the process just like other guys have and decommitted from Notre Dame. But nevertheless, uh, you know, Notre Dame is is still the leader. And I'm sure, you know, he's going to look at Georgia, whatever. Do they have a good shot at him? I think they they have a good shot at getting him on an official visit still. I think even if he would have committed to Notre Dame, I think there's still potential that he would get there. Now, is USC top three for Justin Scott? Does he have high interest in USC? Ooh. I'm reluctant to say that. I'm reluctant to say that. I think he likes USC, but man, top three, T.A. Cunningham, probably better argument that he has high interest in USC, but he's been looking around and he's going to guy that is going to look around. I think the, the big question for him is, is he staying at Los Alamitos? Because if he ends up going back east and going back to Georgia, then I think USC has very little shot at him. I don't think that, that they have a very good shot at him as well. So yeah, like defensive linemen, I think that it's still there's still a lot of work to be done there. With Elijah rushing, no. I think USC is in line for potentially getting a visit, but Elijah rushing has not been on campus very much for USC. For a guy that's 6'5", 230, number one edge rusher in the nation, USC has not done a great job getting him on campus. He has not been he's been on campus like I think once, maybe twice. So that's something that they got to work on, and I think that you're going to continue to see more edge rush. Uh, type offers go out because I do think they feel like they're not necessarily making uh, the biggest gains with him in terms of his interest. So, I mean, again, the biggest question mark and the position that they've got to upgrade the most defensive line, you know, that's kind of where we are. We're kind of like, okay, well, you know, David Stone was out here for camp. Yeah. But you know, he's kind of an Oklahoma legacy. I think, you know, he's looking at USC. He's interested in USC. He's still going to IMG. You know, what's the last player USC got from IMG? Brent Allen. Allen. Yeah. And that was sort of a three-star last minute. We didn't practice where, that, by the way. Huh? We didn't practice saying it at the same time, by the way. Oh, yeah. No, we didn't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that that one is uh, – yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's that's the tough kid. So, yeah, with defensive line, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, super optimistic that, oh, man, they're going to make this big push and they're getting all these players. I think that, uh, you know, potentially they do. But you've got to have more options this year. You do, in the 2024 class, have to have more than, like, two options at defensive tackle. I mean, last year it was, what, Edric Hill was the only guy that was actually rated as a defensive tackle who they had officially visit. And then you have Mateo Ungalale who – projects that he could play inside and be a three technique, but was actually rated as an edge rusher. So yeah, you got, you want to see five or six defensive tackles uh, of visiting over the summer and, and during the season, you got to have more good options to think that you're going to be able to land more good players at the position. Your, your chances are, you know, you, you offering and having 
uh, two defensive tackles that are four star, five stars, and they visit, and you're going to land both those guys is, is just it's not going to happen. You got to have uh, more more options there, and and only time you're going to have good options if those guys are stepping foot on campus. Um, you know, linebacker uh, like we already talked about, Kingston uh, Valamu uh, Vale Vala. Well, now I can't say his last name, uh, but you know who I'm talking about, Valamu Asa. He is, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think USC, I would say high interest in USC at this point, but I think Ohio State's still the leader. Um, Dylan Williams, I think high interest in USC at this point, but I think Oregon is the leader. Um, out of the new scholarship offers that they've given, I wouldn't necessarily say USC's jumped to the top um, for any of those players. Uh, potentially, you could argue, you know, Jason Mitchell, maybe top three for him if you're looking at him as a linebacker, which apparently USC is. Uh, I would say USC has uh, a good shot. Marcellus Williams, obviously his brother there, Max, at USC local player. But he's looking around. He's looking around. Um, Xavier Brown, I would say also. Uh, USC has uh, a, a very good shot at and, and I would say high interest uh, in USC. And then um, Dakota Fields probably, I would say, has high interest. I, I think it's a, it's a battle right now with Oregon and USC, but I think USC – has certainly um, you know, done done a lot during the offseason, really, uh, to make a to make an impact there. But I think that's still a bit of a battle. Um, you know, can USC get back into it with with some of these uh, quarterbacks? You know, Dylan Riola is back on the market right now. He talked a little bit about Lincoln Riley and liking USC and 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 having a a pretty um, you know high opinion of the offense and what have you. I still argue. I don't know if he's the best fit for the offense, but um, they have a decent shot, I guess, at him. I, I don't know if I would say necessarily good is in high interest. You know, when I put USC in the top three for Dylan Rola, I mean, you got Nebraska, you got Georgia. Um, I don't know who else is in it for him right now, but, you know, USC is, is in the conversation, and I think they're in the conversation more if they choose to be in the conversation. Uh, running backs. I don't know, Chris. You name you didn't name any running backs, right? I'm not gonna be worried about Kyle McDonald recruiting run, uh, running backs. So those guys will just pop up randomly in the spring, and then will be they'll be committed by the end of the spring. That's how I yeah. feel like he moves. So James oh. Peoples there, Taylor, Taylor Tatum from Longview is already visiting Christian, USC. Christian Clark, you know the recent guy they just offered out of Phoenix. We'll see if they make a push for him. Jordan Lyle, they just offered. He's adding <laughs> some guys to this board. Do you think Tavani Menzel does visit USC even though he committed to Georgia? He was supposed to visit USC last season. I think it was for the Notre Dame game, but didn't, and then turned around and committed to Georgia. I have to, I have to check in with him. My fellow DeMatha Catholic uh, attendee, I'll, I'll check in with him. But he seemed to have a really good relationship with Kyle McDonald and then, you know, uh, pulled the trigger with Georgia. So that, that happened really quick. So I'll check back in and see what, what's going on with Tavani Menzel. Another guy that is uh, committed, but I think actually USC has high interest in USC and I would say has a good shot at Jeremiah Smith committed to Ohio State. I think Jeremiah Smith still ends up back out here at USC. I think he still takes a visit. Um, I think he still has interest. I don't know if I would feel like super confident that USC is going to get him, uh, but I think they're going to be in the conversation regardless of this commitment to Ohio State, which came when you know they had Dylan Rolla and you know, uh, USC or Ohio State's going to be looking very interesting here uh, in the next month or so, and we'll, we'll see how that all shakes out with them. Um, I don't know if there's another receiver though 
that's got a scholarship offer right now that jumps out to me as a guy that's like, okay, we got a really good shot at, you know, and, and that's where the conversation comes up with Aaron Butler and whether Aaron Butler, they should be recruiting more as a receiver because, you know, who are these guys that they have on the board right now? You've got Jason Robinson. They just kind of rekindled some stuff with Ryan Pelham, Ryan Pelham. who visited this week. Yeah, he really, they weren't really recruiting him at all, and um, they've kind of rekindled that a little bit. You know, Jordan Addison committed to Oregon. That that won't be anything, you know, that won't stop say, him from – Did you say Addison? No, Jordan, Jordan Anderson. Sorry. Jordan Anderson from – I thought Long you said Addison. No, Jordan Anderson from Long Beach Millican uh, committed to Oregon, and uh, that means nothing. <laughs> he will – 100% he will be, you know, taking visits and looking around – uh, he he enjoys recruiting quite a bit. Um, uh, we're going through the list here. King Joseph Edwards, I think they have a good shot at, but he's from Georgia, from Buford. He was at Georgia just a couple weeks ago on an unofficial visit. You know, good luck going to Georgia, trying to get the top players from Georgia when Georgia's won a national championship and recruiting really well. Uh, and then finally, we get the offensive line, where I think, it, you know, this is where USC actually has some, some, some decent um, – some decent traction here with some good players. DeAndre Carter, yeah, 100%. Brandon Baker, yeah, good shot with Brandon Baker. Um, Asandre Afua, eh, probably not. I think, I think you know, they're, they're, they're going to get a visit and what have you. But, again, with those Northwest players, I don't know, USC hasn't had a ton of traction with those guys. And until he comes in on an unofficial visit, I'm not convinced, you know, that he's, that he's like a high-interest guy for USC. I think he's more of a medium-interest guy. So, again, I'm differentiating when you say good shot, you know, what that really means. Uh, Michael Inouye um, from uh, Corpus Cove, Texas, took a visit out here. I hear USC is in a pretty good place with him. Now, you know, they're going out, you know, going head-to-head against TCU in Texas. But I think right now I would say USC probably there with TCU in Texas. So kind of a top three guy. Um, Devin Brooks, uh, the 6'4", 290-pound guard from uh, Calacamas. We love that name, Calacamas, Oregon. Uh, I'd say USC, uh, high interest, high interest with him and definitely a player that USC has potential at. So, you know, the, the offensive line, I kind of feel like USC's definitely, you know, kind of put a good foot forward. But that's also because you have some good local players that they've offered scholarships to. And you really haven't seen too many local athletes that are getting scholarship offers in a lot of these positions. You know, running back. Like, when you talk about running back, not one of those guys that we'd say, you know, USC is in a good position with. now. Would we have said USC was in a good position for Quentin uh, Joyner or Miriam Peterson? It seems like they got offered and it was like, boom, it just happened really quickly for them. So, you know, maybe that happens with one of these guys. But um, they're all they're guys from Texas that, you know, we haven't talked to very much, uh, that uh, some of them haven't been on campus outside Tatum. Um, I don't think uh, Nate Palmer, I don't think, made it campus for an unofficial visit. He's a 5'11", 180-pound running back um, out of uh, Decatur, Texas. And uh, like we talked about, Peoples has not been out here yet. He's from San Antonio. Um, you did talk to him. He didn't go to the San Antonio underclassmen All-American Combine, but you did talk to him did, uh, recently uh, around New Year's? I'm trying to corral that interview, but, yes, we've been in communication. Okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, again, it's one of those things, like, I agree with Chris. You know, Kyle McDonald seems to have a pretty good read on who he likes. And who's going to be good. And sometimes the rankings are not really ahead of that. You know, he's going out and getting guys that, that went up in the rankings, which you, you want to see. And um, he did it at Utah as well. You know, he got guys that, 
weren't necessarily rated really high, but ended up being very good football players. So I think, you know, that's, that's again, something that you don't necessarily worry about too much, but at face value, you know, does Jason Brown have high interest in USC right now? Uh, Probably not, you know, and he's probably the highest rated running back on the West coast at this point. And that plays into one question from D from central Valley, which tells me this is an imposter, not the actual D from central Valley, but my question is to both of you, not including the two current 2020 verbal commits. If you had to make a prediction on who the first 2024 will be, can you give two, give us two to three prospects that might be the first SC verbal? Based on your reports, my predictions are Jordan Lockhart and Zabian Brown. Thank you. I would say Jordan Lockhart or DeAndre Carter, Gerard. Interesting. I don't, man, I don't spend a lot of time in who's going to commit first anymore because it's like, who's going to commit last and stick? <laughs> it's more of, the question, you know, it's like, uh, when when do we get into that window of, okay, these commitments actually stick and mean something? And um, it obviously depends on the player. You know, I mean, Malachi Nelson committed to Lincoln Riley very early on in the recruiting process and then recommitted to him in like November of uh, the year before, 22, and um, or 21, actually, and then, you know, stay committed for the 22 class. But, you know, we did have that little Texas A&M hiccup come up um makai lemon you know committed around the same time and stay committed um so you know who commits first i mean you know as we get past these decommitments um i don't know man i i don't i don't have any real predictions on that i don't care it's like who commits let's see who gets who commits and then figure out what they look like in the grand scheme of things and if they stay committed and it's you know the whole guessing game of Who's going to commit next is just uh, it just doesn't matter to me as much anymore as an analyst. It's so many guys commit and decommit, and commit and decommit. It's um, it's more like, you know, it, it's just focusing on what the bird in the hand. Right. Like that's the thing that is the most important. What can these guys do for USC? They're actually going to go to USC instead of, you know, what's the guy that might commit, maybe visit, but is looking around you know, still, what is he going to do? It's like focusing on something, putting a lot of energy into something that could very easily end up not being anything, right? You know, we don't talk a lot about Jacoby Lane because, you know, we really don't know what's going to happen with Jacoby Lane right now. You know, he hasn't committed to Arizona State. He hasn't decommitted from USC yet. But, uh, you know, we could sit here and talk a lot about he's a wide receiver that USC doesn't have, you know, 6'4", 190, et cetera, et cetera, and go in on that in the comparisons to former players and things. But it's been so shaky, and his commitment was done even originally in such an odd way with, you know, all the sort of um, feedback that we got from people around him. And it was like, okay, you really want to put invest in a lot of time in discussing this when this is something that could very easily fall through. And I know it's just, you know, a matter of just talking about it and everything. But I think people get emotionally invested in this stuff. And I've seen it over the years and I've seen it on the boards where you start talking about certain players and you build these narratives and these subplots to their recruitment. And it's like, this is a dude. And sometimes it happens even without us talking a whole lot about a player. For whatever reason, the peristyle sort of grabs on to this name of this player. And it's like, this is the guy we got to have this guy. And it's like they live and die. And then it's, and you know, in the background, having actually spoken to these kids or 
or the, you know, the people around them and you know more about the recruitment. This kid's not going to USC. Why are you guys obsessed about this? This is probably not going to end well. But nevertheless, it's just something that sort of happens uh, with the message board. So, yeah, people are like, you know, who's going to come in next? I tell you, I would have never in a million years said Joey Olson would have been committed to USC at this point from uh, Oregon, who, you know, a lot of people thought was going to Oregon. You know, so this it's very like, I mean, yeah, like DeAndre Carter could totally be a guy that doesn't commit until the end of the year. And we're like, you know, feeling like he's a guy that, you know, really likes USC, really USC really likes him. You know, why wouldn't he commit? I think with California kids, especially because NIL is is different out here in, in terms of I think there's a lot more talk about it than there is in the South. The South, I think you've got boosters and you've got people that hone in on who the coaching staff really wants. And those are the guys that get approached with things out here because you, again, the entertainment industry and you've got, you know, everybody's God uncle is a freaking agent. You got people, the kids that are like, like not even, they're not even starting on their seven on team that are talking about NIL. And you're like, what? And you're shaking your head. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not the guy to be talking about NIL. It should be the other guys. And so it, that's another thing that's going to make this all very interesting too, in terms of early commitments, you know, the guessing game of like, Who's actually going to settle down with a commitment and, and who's going to want to play the field? You know, who's going to commit and then decommit because he's getting more offers. And it's all of a sudden like, wow, you know, I need to see what other schools are quote unquote offering me. It's like they offered you a scholarship. You know, who's offered you a scholarship. What do you mean offering you, you know, quote unquote. Okay. I'm just going to put you down for Jordan Lockhart after all that. <laughs> sure. All right. Last question, please, Gerard. Don't make me regret doing all the questions. I've already got an hour of editing ahead of me. The final question from Keith W. With respect to the O-line, how long do you think it will take for the O-line to gel this season? Last season, the only new contributor was Haskins. The rest of the guys played together the season before. With so many newcomers this year, is there a risk of drop-off and success? I don't think that, yes, gelling and finding that rhythm as a new O-line is important. But most of those guys, at least Tarquin and Kingston, will be there for the spring white is still up in the air, but for the most part, I think they'll be fine. You know, those guys are veteran players. They play with different guys before across different seasons. So I think more so we'll just be getting used to having a new center with Justin Dietrich in, in, you know, learning his cadence, learning how he operates as a center. I think that's the biggest thing because a lot of the guys on the line have, you know, played together before with Jonah Monheim, Justin Dietrich, you know, Ford, Mason, they, they have familiarity. I know you were specifically talking about the transfer guys and some guys are playing in different spots, but I think it'll take a little bit of time, but I don't think it's going to be a point where it's going to drag on to the middle of the season. And remember, you have two sort of easy games to start the year with San Jose State and blanking Nevada. You have Nevada, so you can get those reps in against you know an inferior defensive line defense to, to kind of get that going, but... I don't think it'll take that long to get everyone on the same page. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, it it, it is interesting because it's left side, right? And it's two guys that have never played together and from different schools and two schools that played a very different brand of football, you know, in, in Washington State and in Florida. Um, so that there is something to be said for that. Um, but you also are assuming that those are going to be the starters. And that guys that are not already on the roster 
are not going to make pushes for those positions. And, you know, we, we sort of um, are maybe a, a little too dismissive of some of those guys. You know, they, they may end up being uh, a bigger part of the mix than, than we think. You know, like we talked about, you know, Kenyones uh, played some last year. Mason Murphy, we're not really sure you know, where he plays. He's going to be competing um, more than likely with the starter uh, to, to be able to start. So, you know, if there's going to be a, a right tackle, he's competing with uh, Michael Turquin, who was a starting right tackle at Florida, or, you know, left side, he'd be competing with Kingston. Or if he's playing in the interior, you would think that you probably want to put him in there for, for Voorhees at left guard, and he would be competing with Ethan White. Um, it's a good problem to have, certainly, uh, but it is uh, a little bit of new blood and new blood on one side of the football. You know, it's, it's uh, the left side. And so those two guys have to come together, but they are um, talented players and they are experienced at their positions and they're experienced at a fairly high level of football at those positions. And so that's where uh, you feel pretty comfortable. So um, I think it's, it's definitely something to watch. I, I don't think, uh, you know, we can just say, you know, oh, well, these, these guys, you just plug them in, they play right away, even though we've seen that from other positions. Um, on the offense, you know, with the receivers and the running backs, running backs particularly. I mean, just you know, the way Travis Dye played with the pass protection and everything was just um, pretty remarkable how quickly they were able to get that down. But as Chris says, you know, we look at, um, you know, that 2023 uh, season and, you know, the initial couple games, you're, you're able to sort of uh, acclimate a little bit. You know, you're able to get your guys and, and probably – get a decent amount of rotations uh, in for various different positions, including the offensive line. So that will be important as well, is the fact that, you know, in the beginning of the year, uh, you know, defensive line had a kind of an interesting rotation almost the whole year. I mean, it really took <laughs> until the last couple games of the season where you didn't see, like, just like a new defensive line front uh, starting the game each game. It, it just seemed like every game. Uh, they had uh, different different starters. Uh, with the offensive line, it wasn't so much that um, a, a toward the end of the season, but in the beginning of the season, it was. Uh, you obviously had some injuries that changed some things, but they were playing with some some different lineups to kind of get a feel. And I think the beginning of the season, uh, you can do that. You know, you've got three straight home games, and you've got two games against teams that you should be able to dominate pretty well. Um, and so, you know, that's that's going to be something. And I, and I think you've got a bye week between uh the Stanford game After Stanford, and yeah. yeah and and uh the Arizona State game so that will also play into effect with some of the new players being able to 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 get them up to speed uh quicker and that's um you know a different spot in the in the in this in this schedule uh, than it was last year it's probably not a good a spot in terms of injuries you know um the Stanford game early in the season and we'll see what Stanford plays like, you know, new coach and everything and, and you know, what their mentality is. But they've been a physical football team. It's like Stanford and Utah are the two games that you feel weeks after you've played them. You know, you, you tend to have injuries and guys that are banged up from those games because they're physical football teams. And so that might not be such a bad thing, even though it's earlier in the season than you want. Than you want. You kind of want your bye week to be basically in the middle of the season, uh, mostly uh, towards the end, you know, so you because you know you're going to have some guys injured. Um, that, you know, at face value, you think, ah, oh, you know, after the third game of the season, that's too, that's too early, but it actually being after the Stanford game might not be, uh, such a, such a bad thing. But again, we don't know what kind of Stanford team we're, we're going to be seeing, 
Um, but uh, that's going to be right before you you go and play at Arizona State, who you know has a new coaching staff and is, is a new team, and, and that might be good, you know, to have that bye week to be able to uh, prepare for them. But and and in in you know how you prepare yourself, you know, self evaluation, whatever, use that bye week can help with uh, perhaps the the offensive line after having uh, three games that you should be able to dominate. You should be able to blow out Stanford, quite frankly, just as just as well as uh, Nevada and San Jose State if USC wants to get to where they want to get to, you know. But of course, we thought that last season after they, um, you know, got done with uh, a couple of those just very difficult games where they had that turnaround of of Utah and, uh, you know, they had Cal and they had Arizona State and they had Arizona and they had, you know, a few games where everybody's going, okay, now this is the down part of the, the schedule and ended up being some of the closest games they had each year. So you never really know how that that sort of shakes out. You know, the, the team uh, has to be focused, you know, to be able to, to come out early in the season. I think, you know, early in the season, though, it's easier because guys, hey, so early, it's the beginning of the season, you know, they're excited to play and everything. It's, it's really towards the later of the year. And you start playing teams that you should be able to blow out. Sometimes you you do lose that focus easier because you're focusing on you know okay well we got UCLA coming up oh we got Notre Dame coming up oh we got you know the Pac-12 championship game that you know you automatically think you're going to be playing in. Um, so beginning of the season, it's easier to keep that focus. Okay, and I want to thank everyone and thank uh, Gerard for reminding me why. I started only doing a handful of questions and not every question on the docket. We are going back to that next week. But thank you so much for all the questions that were submitted for this podcast. Gerard, we're done. Three hours plus might actually be the longest non uh, the longest episode we've done, not including the live one that we put up, which was like four hours long. But speaking of that. We will be live next Wednesday. Next time you listen to this show for the first time for a new episode, we will be live on YouTube. It should be a lot of fun. February 1st. Will USC have some new recruits to talk about? Possibly. We'll see what's going on there. Uh, but yeah, Gerard, we're going to wrap this show up. Yeah. Hopefully it's uh, a bigger day than uh, December signing day, which was a great show. It was fun. And uh, always appreciate, you know, the support that we get and interacting with you guys. Um, live show is a little different, obviously, because you guys are chatting and you're trying to sneak in those questions as we're talking about things. And it, it does make it, I think, a little better efficiency wise, though, because we don't get so many redundant questions. You know, when you guys have to put them in ahead of time. You obviously don't know what questions are already being asked. And so we do get a lot of uh, redundancy in, in terms of uh, what people want to know. So hopefully we cover that, you know, in the conversations that we have and the follow-ups uh, that we have on uh, various different topics that we cover. But for the live show, yeah, it's popping a little more. Um, you know, USC's got a chance here maybe to get two or three guys on, on signing day. Um, I would say maybe a better shot to get somebody on signing day, this signing day, than the last signing day, uh, looking at it uh, a week out. Yeah, so if you did not catch the first live episode or you didn't watch it live, on the playback and you just listen to the podcast or watch the thing come join us it's a lot of fun hopefully we can go five hours you know maybe you can join the the four-hour crew that that made it last year but or excuse go me five, last go, go five hours and only record four hours you mean yeah that that's that's exactly what i mean and i said last year and it actually was literally last year so yeah that will be fun the first live show of 2023 for composite two-star recruits I am Chris. That is Hurricane. Sometimes I'm Gerard, apparently. And we will catch you next time on a live episode of Composite Two Star Recruits.
Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. 